Hello everybody and welcome back to episode 2 of Retro Game Explorers. I am one of your hosts, Pete Dorn, and I'm joined by Bovine once again. Hello, Bovine. Hello, Pete. Hello, everyone out there. And first of all, we just wanted to thank everybody for your awesome feedback from the first episode. A lot of you enjoyed it, and we really appreciate hearing your thoughts and impressions and such on Twitch. Um, it really helps encourage us to, you know, get together and record the second episode, which we're very excited to get into. And just wanted to give a, a really quick shout-out to Jabis Blue and Eugene Jenkins for leaving us two very nice five-star reviews on iTunes. Appreciate it, guys. Those... They go a long way, especially taking the time out of your day to write one. We really do appreciate that. Uh, any five-star ratings or reviews on iTunes are definitely appreciated because it'll help us grow on there and maybe find a new audience outside of just uh, our Twitch listeners. So thank you guys. Much appreciated. For today's episode, we're pretty much just going to go over um, a couple of listener questions at the end of the show. We're going to be talking about how we build our video game wish lists and, of course, games that we've been playing recently. But we've got some nice... Nice juicy questions to dig into from you guys that you sent to our email, which once again is retrogameexplorers at gmail.com. If you want to send us any questions or comments for future shows for us to discuss. But we're going to start off with pretty much talking about how we build a wish list for our games, how we go about that, what do we use, the process for building it, and then what happens after we build the wish list. So Bovine, why don't you start, you know, how do you, how do you decide what goes into building a wish list? What program do you use? And then how do you find the games to put on those wish lists? And what determines what goes on your wish list? Uh, I don't know. I mean, these days, I guess when I was starting out and I was collecting again, I didn't really use um, many resources other than what was off the top of my head. I mean, when I started rebuilding my retro collection two years ago, I mean, one of the first things I did, obviously, was kind of consult my brother and my sister because the funny thing was that they seem to have a pretty good memory in terms of remembering what games we had like when i sat down and tried to figure out what i had and you know which one games are missing like i really felt like there were like these huge gaps in the games that i had it was because like a lot of my collection i would get it trade it in i would lend games out so it was really kind of tough to start building the the list of my games to get because my initial goal when i set out was to basically recollect everything I had. That was like goal number one. And since I didn't use any resource back then to track all of my games, it was really tough. I, mean, I was just sitting there looking at lists of you know all the possible games for all the systems and just trying to remember, did I have this? Did I not have... It was really tough. So I did my best to rebuild that initial list of just remember, okay, let's grab everything I had as a kid. So when I finished kind of like a rough draft of those lists, I would send it off to my little brother to say, hey, can you look at this list and remember if there were any games, you know, that we had or not? And amazingly enough, like I remember there was this, we were trying to rebuild our Genesis games list for, cause for whatever reason, even though he's a lot younger than me, like he just remembered all of those games. And so we went back and forth on this list and we said, okay, yeah, maybe, you know, we forgot, forgotten worlds or we definitely had, you know, this Alex kid and, you know, we didn't have that decap attack. So we were just building it out. Oh, and the funny thing was, is that, after we went through a couple revisions, I looked at the list. I said, yeah, it sounds like there was about, you know, between 50 and 60 games. So I thought that was kind of fun in trying to, you know, build it back up. But I mean, and, and you know, when I started buying things back again, it was just doing that, building everything off of what I remember, just buying the things I remember that I had, buying the things that, 
you know, I really want as a kid. So during the first year or so recollecting, that's all it was. It was just buying the stuff that I knew off the top of my head. So there wasn't really a big science behind that or anything. So, I mean, that's how it started out for the first year. And then within the past year, once you get to that level where, okay, I bought back everything I really wanted as a kid. So how, now what's the next step? And the next step for me was to just then start from scratch again, go back to the beginning of all those lists of every, every console's games list and just picking out the ones that I thought I wanted as a kid. And that part was actually something I did remember. And it was a combination of looking at game titles, you know, doing a quick, you know, look up of the information on the internet, just looking for any type of game reviews or information on them. And I would really just kind of, I would try to go off the same process I used as a kid growing up. Now, even though the internet's available now, we have access to all kinds of information. We can look at game playthroughs. Like I was just trying to find a brief description of the game, a couple screenshots, something this, it was like the same way where I would be shopping through, looking through VidPro cards at Toys R Us and trying to like remember if I could spark something in my head, like, oh, that's a game that I wanted as a kid. So again, it's very unscientific. And that's the way how I initially built my list for like these last two years. And it's not, there's not much to it because I really want to still leave a lot of that mystery to the games that I felt like I wanted as a kid. Like I still want that feeling of doing that very, very kind of initial, you know, very, vague search for a game that may look good based on description based on screenshots like i was really trying to recapture that feeling of like flipping through magazines and picking up games or you know deciding on games to purchase based on like very little information whether that's a good way to go or not i have no idea but you know that's that's changed you know recently but like how did it go for you pete i mean i know that for you I mean, I don't know at what point as you were picking up games, like what was the process for you? Like, were you already in the internet age when you were doing all those or? I was actually never really a big, I was never really a big wishlist builder until maybe a few years ago. Over the years, I never really felt the need to build wishlists because I kind of knew off the top of my head kind of what games I was after or I kind of like, you know, just like you, I kind of like the sense of discovery where I wouldn't really build a predetermined list of games that I'd be really looking for. I'd kind of just happen upon them and then decide right then and there if I wanted it. But what really made me want to have to start building wish lists is when I started getting more into import games because it just became simply too hard to remember the names of some of these games, especially games that were, you know, their names were in Japanese that didn't really have a direct translation. So I'm like, all right, I got to start making a list so that way I can remember the names of these games that I see and you know, maybe they're rare games that are not immediately for sale and I need to put them on a wish list so that I can kind of remember to search for them down the line. And and that's that's kind of the beauty in a wish list of really hard to find obscure games is that you make the wish list and then say six months later you revisit the wish list and then you look through it and you're like, What the hell game is this that I put on my wish list? <laughs> and then you go look it up again and it's like you're rediscovering the game for the first time. Because like you I, I usually all it takes for me to add a game to the wish list is uh either just a couple of cool screenshots, but most likely it's me looking up a video on YouTube, which pretty much amounts to me skimming through it and watching maybe a collective total of ten to thirty seconds and I know between that time frame of watching a video skipping around that it might be a game for me or not. Of course I do a little bit more research on Japanese imports because I gotta make sure that it's actually playable. But if I deem them cool enough looking, I'll add it to the wish list. Price is not really uh I'm not saying it's not a factor, but regardless of price I add it on there just so I don't forget about it. 
Um, probably my most extensive wish list that I've made is one for Game Boy Color because I went through the entire library of North American and for the most part all of the European exclusive Game Boy Color games and I knew that I was going to forget which ones were worth picking up. Uh, I watched you know the video for each one and then I just built the wish list. I made a list of anyone that looks somewhat fun. Threw that together. Of course, I don't use any. Um, I don't use any collecting apps or anything. I just <laughs> do you use any fancy pad. application or you know, wish list nope, programs? No. The way I've been, I just open up a WordPad document, <laughs> throw that shit in there, put some dashes in there between the systems. <laughs> you have dashes. You wow, it's not the most elegant way. <laughs> yeah, I put them in a few dashes just to separate systems, and there you go. Uh, it, I don't know. I've never been an organized person, so yeah. to me, the sloppy, you know. Nice and sloppy way of a WordPress wishlist is, or WordPad wishlist is the best way to go about it. Just recently, last year, I, when I went to Portland Retro Gaming Expo, I decided to um, build, you know, use one of those collecting apps. I think it was called like My Game Collection or something. Mm-hmm. And I was always worried about those because I was always afraid that they wouldn't have all the games for a peculiar, like a certain system. Um, for the most part, they've been pretty reliable, but there are some games that I am noticing they don't have, and it searches through databases like. Uh, giant bombs database or uh, what's the other one? I don't. They, like they use a couple of different databases. Games database, games I think, or something. Something, yeah. And they don't have everything. They really don't. But the giant bomb, I find, usually has some of the more obscure stuff that I that I own. Let me just say, it's a pain in the ass to build a wish list with those apps. It takes a long time manually importing each game that I have. Um, I did it for my PlayStation collection. Because it got to the point where I was going to conventions, because my PlayStation collection is getting pretty extensive in terms of like those really cheap games that I pick up for a few dollars. It's mm-hmm. to the point now where I can't remember if I have it or not. So I had to build a, uh, a game collection list for that, and uh, that helped me better keep track. I mean, this isn't really like a wish list, but it's still in the same vein, right? Where it's like, okay, does this game look cool from the cover? Does it seem cheap enough? Okay, it's pretty much on my wish list, and that's how I go about buying it if it's... If it's not in that app. I'm very lazy, though, when it comes to that, so I very rarely update these things. I haven't updated them since I went to the convention last year, so... <laughs> it's not going to be fun figuring out what's on that list and what isn't after the games I've bought. Time to review the notepad man, list, man. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, going back to that, it's like... When I got when I got through the games that I was familiar with, and then I was presented with a choice, say, okay, so how, how do I go about researching brand new games that I have zero information about? It's almost too tantalizing to, I mean, one of the things that I had access to, right? It's like, you could just have a system that has a ROM list of every NES game, for example. So, I mean, one of the main focuses for me was getting a lot of the NES games that I missed out on as a kid. So after I initially bought my first, you know, 40, 50 titles that I remember from my childhood, I said, well, what's the process now? How am I going to go about going through it? And, you know, I had access to my NVIDIA Shield that has all the NES ROMs on there. And it's strange that I could just go through and play every single game and figure out, okay, is this one I want to buy? based on like how it plays and i i've really tried hard not to use that method to pick the games like for some reason i always thought like i did that i think for like the first two games like there was a game i was trying to figure out what kind of game it was and this was early on there was a game called sword master for the nes it was a really late release game and i think it was by was it falcom i can't remember but it was one of those late releases that i knew nothing about as a kid growing up, I never saw it in magazines. I never looked up any of that information. So as I was looking through like the initial games list for NES, I saw the, I saw the name of it. 
I said, well, why don't I just boot it up on my emulator system and just see what kind of game it is, right? And when I booted it up and I played through it, I said, okay, this seems like a really fun game and I should play through it. But there was like, there was almost something wrong with doing that because I was getting not like a quick preview. I wasn't getting a cliff notes. I was literally getting like a carbon copy of the game to know that, oh, when I go buy this game, and the game at that time was about 80 to $90. And I was trying to make that decision say, do I, do I want to spend that much for this kind of game? And I really wish I had not gone through that process because ever since then, what I, I mean, because what happened was that I played through it, I bought it. And then when I brought it home and played it, I thought, oh yeah, this is, you know, the same game I just played on the emulator you know, like, a, like a week ago before I was trying to decide what to do. And it kind of ruined that first playthrough of the game for yeah. me. And that kind of speaks to how I am too when it comes to, that's why I don't do emulation to begin with is because I think there's something really exciting about looking up a game, maybe watching just a little bit of gameplay. And then leaving that mystery up to getting in the game in the mail, like the excitement of getting the game, popping it in, streaming it, you know, getting that first impression in front of everybody instead of kind of like pre-screening it. Yeah. And then it also comes with like, I feel like if you have access to ROMs and everything, it's like you can play a game for five minutes and say, eh, this isn't that great. Let's move on to something else and see if mm. there's another game that might be a little bit better for my, for my money. But then, you know. What if that game takes 30 minutes to get good? And then if you were to buy that game instead of just testing it out on a ROM, you can get it in the mail, and then you're going to give it a little bit more light of day, a little bit more of a chance, because you you made that investment, you spent that money on the game, and then maybe you're going to play it for an hour instead of just testing it out for five minutes on an emulator. You know? Yeah, and maybe this speaks to that larger issue, right, about how we talk about you know playing... Having access to all the games, like I, you know, it's commonly referred to, I mean, I've been calling it Netflix syndrome, where if I just have a system with all the emulators and ROMs, I won't spend any time on games. Like individually, they just don't feel personable to sit down and say, well, I want to give this game time because I spent X money on it. I'm going to give it a shot. It's like you really look at it through a different set of glasses. And I, I mean, I don't know. At that point, you know, when I, I did it for like the first couple of games, but ever since then, I've done as much as I can to just remove access. I, despite having everything at my fingertips, it's like trying to decide how much of that I, I, I prevent myself from using so that I can s- search for and purchase games like the way I would have back then. And it's really tough, right? Because every, all this information is exactly at our fingertips. We can bring up a YouTube video of it right there. We can run it up on a ROM. But to like intentionally block yourself from this, that, to retain that excitement you get from playing a new game, like that's really, once I figured out that that's kind of like the big thing about, you know, collecting retro games. Again, I've decided from then on out, I'm not going to do anymore. I'm just going to play them all as blind as I can. And people always wonder why I'm so adamant about, you know, no emulation. I won't even put an emulator on my computer. I won't do anything. The closest I've ever come to that is using MAME because I wanted to play Splatterhouse for possible speedrunning purposes. And that was the biggest headache. Like, that, oh God, never again <laughs> will I ever try and work with MAME. That shit just does not work for me. But that's pretty much the closest I've ever come to emulation. But the thing with MAME is, like, unless I'm going to have arcade machines, there's no other way to play these games. So to me, I'm okay with that. You know, I have I have fine lines that I don't cross, and one of the lines I don't cross is home console emulation of games. MAME, I think, is another story, especially if it's for speedrunning purposes, because you have to have save states for practice on those games, mm-hmm. um, which is why it also makes speedrunning other retro games on consoles a little bit difficult, because it's like, why am I going to speedrun this game on Sega Genesis when other people are able to practice with save states and I don't have that luxury? So it's, I don't know, it's kind of like a weird line... <laughs> You're approaching that line really quick as a professional speedrunner now. You know that, right? Yeah, it's uh, 
it's it's a little it's a little hard to, to stomach the fact <laughs> that people can use safe states to practice and I can't, but it's something I got to live with. I mean, people probably think you're crazy right now with your current speed runs of Bubsy and Son- even Sonic R, where it's only like 12 minutes to get to that last stage where you want to practice. You're like, oh, I'll just play the 10 minutes every time and get practice on the way there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's still not tempting me, though. Nothing nothing will break me for emulation. But I think this is actually a really good segue. I know we were said we were going to get into uh, listener questions later, but I think, you know, while we're on this topic and this question really relates directly into what we were just talking about, mm-hmm. I think for now we should hit up one question from Larry. Uh, well, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his last Thibodeau? name. Thibodeau? Thibodeau, is that correct? I'm going to go okay. with Thibodeau. All right, so we got a question from Larry Thibodeau. He says, hey, guys, totally loving the first episode. So he's going to shoot us a question having to do with the fact that since we are such advocates for real hardware in our streams on Twitch, um, how does having to use real hardware, since we're very adamant about not using ROMs in our streams, he says, how do we actually go about streaming on Twitch? Um, What are the difficulties of only using real hardware (laughs) uh, as a philosophy? And how how it's been for for both of us? How has it affected our content on Twitch? Whew. And what has been our most difficult console to get onto Twitch from this real original hardware only perspective? You want to take a crack at that first, or? Um, it's hard. I mean, I'm kind of jealous of people that use emulation. I almost feel like it's cheating in a way. I mean, I don't despise it, but I I always get jealous of people that stream retro games that just have the world at their fingertips, right? It's like so-and-so in chat asks, oh, can you play this game on X system? They're just like, sure, let me pop it on for you there. And then, you know, someone else asks, can you play this game? And they're like, yep, here you go. There's another game for you. <laughs> I get kind of like envious of it because I'm like, damn, I wish I didn't have this mindset of mine because then I could play every game under the sun and there would be no limitations. But at the same time, those streams usually boil down to, not all of them, but a majority of them, boiled down to people that jump between games at a very rapid pace, right? And I feel like when I'm playing original games on original hardware, I tend to spend a bit more time. But that's that's derailing off this question. The, the problems that it presents is, for me personally, I find it to be a pretty big pain in the ass to have to switch between consoles. So that's typically why when you see me streaming a game, I will typically stick with one console for the night, because not only do I sometimes have to change my layouts, because the, the aspect ratio of the screen changes... Uh, different hookups required for the Elgato. I just tend to stick with one system for the night. So yeah, it's it's kind of a big pain to have to find my wires because ever since I've started streaming full time lately, it's there's just wires all over the place, consoles all over the place, controllers all over the place. I'm not the best when it comes to putting stuff back. I try. I got my boxes and bags of rubber bands to wrap up my cords and stuff after I'm done. But let me tell you, it doesn't stay neat for long. It's like I've got a web of spider freaking wires at my feet at all times while I'm streaming behind the scenes. You guys have no idea. Uh, so, yeah, number one for me is just keeping organized. It's really because a lot of times I take the console and I put it right next to me in case I'm doing hot swaps of games. Um, so it's within immediate reach. So things get kind of messy. Um and I'd say, like, the biggest downfall of that is just you don't have the convenience of always being able to switch games uh, at a moment's notice, you know? You kind of have to stick with what you're playing for the night for extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. What about you, Bill? I mean, the whole thing about real hardware for me, and it, this kind of speaks more to his philosophy question, like, how does it affect the philosophy of what I want to do and what I want to use? So when I first started out, and wanted to decide what I was going to do because <clears throat> I was in the process of collecting all this, all these consoles, 
all these games, you know, in the middle of collecting the consoles and games, I figured, you know, I found out about the world of like RGB connections for all these connections for all these systems as well. And what insane image clarity you can get out of these old systems. Like I don't remember any of my old systems looking like this. They, they were, they all felt like completely brand new systems when I was able to modify them for RGB or get the right cable and then hook them up to like a professional monitor. Like once I had that set up, it was, it was a sickness. Like I had to go and try to get that done for every single console that I had. Like if it was capable, if it was RGB, you know, compatible, I needed to mod it, get the right cable, get the right setup. And then, you know, get every one of them set up that way. So once I got to the point where I collected all that equipment, all that hardware, my original plan was to, you know, create some, maybe I wanted to create some YouTube content or something along those lines where I could offer like tutorials and tips and helps for people that wanted to get into retro game collecting and then not only get in back to it, but get back into it with these enhanced, you know, RGB features that are available on a lot of these consoles. So while I was in the middle of trying to decide, well, how was I going to do it? How was I going to record it? How was I going to capture all this stuff? I realized that I had all the equipment set up ready to stream. So I started doing a lot of research on Twitch. I was watching a bunch of different retro streamers. Of course, I was watching you. I was watching these speedrunners. And I was thinking to myself, that's kind of cool how it would almost be a little, like a little niche for myself, right? Where I could say, hey, you know, there's people on Twitch and obviously there's a lot of people that speed run and they play emulators. But if you, you know, I, if you come here and watch me, you can see what the actual original hardware will look like stream to you. Like that was very important to me. It was important to me because I thought one, it would be unique. Cause obviously as I was researching other retro streamers, I said, well, how am I going to stand out? Right? Like they can go to anybody to, you know, see someone play Super Mario Brothers three, but you know, maybe I could use that as a hook. I could say, Hey, look, if you come in here, and you ever ask, oh, are you emulating this? I could, you know, I could be proud and say, no, hey, this is a real. Which is a and very was- common question that we get asked all the time. <laughs> People always want to know, like not always, but there are typically once per stream if you're playing retro. There's usually at least one person that always asks, is this emulated? Mm-hmm. So it is, it is, you know, you might say to yourself, who cares if it's emulated or if it's on real hardware? But there are apparently quite a few people that are curious and they care. And to me, I get sort of like a warm, fuzzy feeling when I go to someone's stream and it doesn't have like pixel perfect quality. I kind of like that, that kind of like fuzzed out Vaseline look of that, you know, kind of unclear, you know, there's nothing, I know Bovine will not disagree with this, uh, not disagree, but I'm saying he won't agree with this point, but I kind of like sometimes walking into someone's, walking in, viewing someone's stream and they're using like composite cables or some (laughs) shit, you know? Because the image quality is degraded quite a bit, but there's just something about that that kind of like tells me, all right, I don't even have to ask if this is emulated because I know right now. And this is how it looked for me when I played it on my TV. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's obviously, you know, there's a fellow streamer of ours, Gunstar Heroes, who's like right now he's very proud of the fact that everything's running through like RF and composite, like the lowest qualities. <laughs> and every time I go in there, it just oh, breaks God. my heart. <laughs> But the funny thing was, because I was setting everything up for RGB, like by the time, it's weird, right? Because if you RGB the console and you upscale it, and then by the time you send it out to the stream, it really looks exactly the same as like an emulation scene. It does. Mm-hmm. So I get that question. Initially when I started streaming, I got that question a lot. Like everyone just assumed I was playing through emulation until they saw me like grab a cartridge and change it. And then they were shocked. They were saying, how, how is that? How are you playing real hardware? It's impossible, right? Bovine, you need to set up a second webcam and put the other webcam on whatever real hardware it is that you're using. <laughs> I have no more room on my layout. That's the problem. I wish I could do that. But, <laughs> but no, like 
going back to Larry's question, though, I mean, in terms of the difficulty, like, I mean, one, that's how I kind of got to where I was. In terms of my philosophy and wanting to stream real retro hardware, and it makes zero sense in some cases. Like, even in my head, like what you were saying, Pete, like, I wish I could have it easy. I wish I could have everything just booting up a ROM, and then in the end, I'm just playing a game. But in all actuality and in, in reality, when you compare real hardware to any type of emulation, even the most accurate type of emulation out there, I still feel there are some things that are off. And it could be something as simple as like a minor so. sound effect, a frequency response that's off, something. And I remember vividly one of the first things that kind of drove my point home was that I was, this was before I had, you know, got big into collecting. I was starting to play retro games again, but I hadn't started the big process of modifying and buying and purchasing. But I was playing Mega Man X on an emulator on my portable device. And I was and I was thinking to myself, well, I don't remember finishing this game as a kid. I know I played through it, but I didn't finish it. So I sat down and said, let me play through this game. Because it was in that process where I wanted to play through a game and verify that, you know, I wanted to purchase this game. I mean, it's Mega Man X. I was going to purchase it anyways. So I thought to myself, let me just play through it. So as I was playing through it, everything was good. I was going through the levels. I was doing the whole, you know paper, scissors, rock thing, trying to figure out which boss to kill before I can get to the other one. And it was really fun to play it with no guides and no information, no FAQs. But I got to a certain level after all the bosses. This is like during the Wily Castle, mm-hmm. where there were these well, there were these floating platforms that were moving around and you had to jump from one to the next. But the problem is there was like a layer of like transparency or something missing. There was some UI or graphical layer that was missing from the simulation I was playing. And I didn't even know. I just thought this was like an impossible section that I had to traverse with these jumps without any assistance later on. And then I would look at, I looked it up on YouTube and there was someone playing the real cartridge and I thought, Oh shit, there's a whole layer of graphics that I'm missing here is because I was playing it through emulated. So especially if it's parallax graphics, it's like that, that extra layer can go a long way. Yeah, I mean, it's not even, yeah, in those instances, it's not, you will be missing a graphical effect, right? Which even that is important, but then to also be missing like a gameplay element, like that was just inexcusable. And I thought to myself from here on out, I just can't do it because I don't want to run into those little issues, even if it's 0.01% of games or, or this certain games level that will be off. I just didn't want to run into that ever again after that. And getting back to one more thing that I find really difficult to deal with is when it comes to handheld consoles. <laughs> there are quite a few handheld consoles that I would love to stream, and it's my biggest regret for not being into emulation. Consoles like the Neo Geo Pocket Color, right? mm-hmm. or the Wonder Swan Color, for example. Those systems, there are currently absolutely 100% no way to stream those using the real hardware, unless you use gorilla-style webcam pointing that shit down like I do which is not easy, the quality suffers, but it's the sacrifice I have to make where I could just emulate, I could, and it would look fantastic, it would be super easy, but because I have to stick to my pretty much religion at this point of real hardware only, you know, I I have to bear with uh, either not being able to stream these consoles, and I have tried to stream Neo Geo Pocket Color, and I have tried to, well, record footage from the Wonderswan, I haven't tried streaming yet, but I have recorded footage for YouTube, and it is not it's, it's difficult. Easy. And why yeah. Why do I not emulate? Because I'll never want to collect for those consoles again. If I have the world at my fingertips for the entire library for those games, believe me, I, I would never want to buy another game for those consoles. But you might argue, but Pete, if you can never stream the Wonderswan, you know, does that mean you'll never buy games for it again? Not necessarily. I mean, I would just have to play them kind of on my own time. But those are the sacrifices we do make. And that kind of leans me into his final part of the question, which asks, 
what is the most difficult system you've ever had to hook up um, because you only use real hardware? And that 100% for me is easily the Virtual Boy. My, uh, like how I pulled it off, I still don't understand. But I, yeah, I stream the Virtual Boy without emulation by hooking up a webcam, strapping a webcam to the right eyepiece of the Virtual Boy. I had to get it, let me tell you. So it took me about two hours of setup, okay? So if you can imagine me sitting there for about two hours with a webcam, rubber bands, um, a couple of loose change, um, bubble wrap. What was the loose so change I, for? <laughs> the loose change was, okay, so this is this is how crazy it is, right? So I get the webcam on the eyepiece. I have to rubber band it in place with the mm-hmm. exact size rubber bands and just the right like pressure so that it stays you know, in place without moving. Because you have to remember, you, you rubber band the webcam in place. That's a pretty hefty device, first of all. Yep. You have to wrap rubber bands around vertically, horizontally, and then you have to make sure that that shit is not going to shift. <laughs> so what I had to do was, okay, so you get the webcam positioned on the eyepiece, but you have to remember the eyepiece on the Virtual Boy is not a flat surface. It's yep. actually kind of angled and slanted. Mm-hmm. So I had to figure out a way, because if you just point the webcam in that eyepiece, the picture is not going to be centered because it's just the webcam is not going to be pointing the right way. So I had to sit there, and I had to take pennies and quarters or whatever the hell I was using. <laughs> jam them in there. Place them, jam them under the <laughs> webcam to kind of like lift the webcam up so that it had just the right angle, and I had to keep placing like one penny in there, second penny in there, uh, just until it was at the exact right angle so that it would be kind of centered, <laughs> and then hope that the rubber bands were tight enough so that the pennies wouldn't fall out. Um, then I had to use uh, bubble wrap to further brace the webcam in place by placing it kind of like on the sides of the webcam so it wouldn't shift around. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, I finally got it um, to the point that it is now preserved on archives. On it turned out pretty good, if you ask me. It's there surprising. were people, I mean, I was pretty proud because there were people in there thinking that it was emulations. Really? <laughs> if I got it that good looking, then I'll take it. And I guess you were lucky too, right? Because since the, the 3D stereoscopic view on the verb, on the virtual board, it doesn't give you a shifted image to the left and right eyepiece. It's actually the same thing, just at different angles. So you only had to focus on one eyepiece. So if you had to find some way to do both. It's impossible. Ugh. Yeah, it's impossible. <laughs> um, I mean, would I ever do it again? I'm, I'm sure if I want to. I actually have two virtual boys, so mine is still kind of like strapped in with the rubber bands and the bubble wrap, but it would take me forever to reposition the webcam on that thing. Um, but what about you, Bovine? Was there anything that you really struggled with for real hardware? I mean, the only thing I'm struggling with is that I don't want to stream anything unless I can pull this video signal out on the digital lines at some point, right? So You like, won't stoop you know- down to my level of... <laughs> recording a lynx which by the way the lynx was hard as hell <laughs> to stream like the lighting on that that's why bovan has his hooked up so he can do rgb out and stuff see i'm telling you this that's the big advantage there right so but i mean yeah in terms of gorilla like the gorilla style filming i got for one i don't even have enough good enough camera that i don't think i can even pull it off so i don't even try but to like leave out some of these systems that we we're talking about like the neo geo like i would love to stream neo geo pocket i would love oh, to stream God. The Wonder Swan, like and like the Wonder Swan. Hoping for a breakthrough where someone somehow comes up with a way. Yeah, I mean, there's all these systems that are still there's still bounties out there. So in all these forums out there, like you you can go to like these individual devices forums or like like general retro forums. 
And some of them have these bounties that where people will pay if, you know, you can figure out a way to tap the lines of this device and stream it out. So there's a lot of them that have been sitting up there for years where people are just like, either one, there's not a lot of interest or two, it's just impossible. Like there's no way to do it or it's not capable or people just don't have the technical know-how to do it. So I'm sitting there with bated breath waiting for a lot of these systems, you know, bounties to do. Like I've tried it myself a couple times. Like I've, you know, got extra game comms to try to figure out if there's any lines on there, but it's a tough road. I, I can't speak about filming Guerrilla Style with at least bringing up this story in case some people have never heard. So back on Twitch a couple of years ago when I was like super, a few years ago, whenever Mario Kart 7 was still relevant on the 3DS, I was so hardcore into streaming that game. And at the time, capture devices just didn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. So there's just, you couldn't order one to, to stream a game on Twitch. So I had to take a webcam. I had to, they have like these, um, these like seat things that you can put on like a bed or something like that to kind of like lay in bed with. So I used one of those behind me. Okay. I, I strapped a webcam. I think at one point I actually had the webcam on my shoulder and I taped the webcam down so that yeah, like a shoulder mounted webcam on top of the shoulder. Yeah. Like a shoulder mounted, <laughs> like webcam the predator cannon. pointing. <laughs> yeah. Pointing down at my 3ds and then just trying to stay as still as possible for like five plus hours as I stream Mario Kart 7 on my 3DS. You know that's why you have back problems now, right? Stuff like that. <laughs> Dating back to Mario Kart 7 streams. <laughs> but those are the lengths that we had to go to back then, the stream. Yeah, stream I think that... Helps, and still you, today for me. You got to help yourself out a little bit. Things have progressed a little bit on some of these consoles. Pizza, please, for the love of God, get some of these things RGB bought so you don't have to do that kind of crap anymore. There's a certain charm to it, though, I will say. But in terms of, like, difficulty, I mean, I got to say, like, to answer Larry's question, like, what's the most difficult? Everything. Everything is still a constant, difficult, like, objective for me. Like, as much as I've done to get everything RGB mod and get the cleanest signal, like, between, like, these, I have these constant video issues where, like, something's wrong along the path between my RGB consoles and then, like, the upscaler. Or now I've got the Frame Meister. I bought the Frame Meister hoping it would be, like, a, a fix-all to everything or a catch-all to the fi- my fixes. Nope. In fact, it's giving me even more problems now. So, like, in terms of what's the difficult to stream, everything. Because everything is difficult to stream if you're trying to pull, like, RGB out and get it all routed through SCART boxes and upscalers. And uh, it's just a constant pain that I'm constantly dealing with on a weekly basis still but it's fun to troubleshoot i guess so before we move on from the wish list topic that we were talking about earlier i just thought it would be kind of fun to maybe just rattle off a couple of our most wanted games that we're looking for in our collection and i think the way i'm going to do it is i'm just going to look around my game room and pick a console and just ask you if you have one if, if not that's okay i can probably name one or unless you need time to think about it um what your most wanted game for that particular console would be Oh, sure. Uh, I don't have a predetermined list, so I'm just going to think of these off the top of my head, so there might be a better choice. But we'll start with Game Boy Color. So for me personally, my most wanted game on that is something I've been after for many years, because uh, it's a little hard to get complete in box, and it never came out in the U.S. But uh, Die Katana on the Game Boy Color. It's actually a Zelda-style port uh, of Die Katana, which you may remember as an N64 game, PC game, John Romero. Well, there's a Game Boy Color version that's pretty much like a Zelda game. Uh, I've seen them on eBay before. They're either in poor condition or they're just a little too expensive for their own good. Um, now, most people might think I might say Shantae, which, of course, I would love to own Shantae, but I know how that game is already. I'm very much looking forward to playing a Daikatana Game Boy Color game. 
Is there a Game Boy Color game that you're looking for, Boba? I mean, there was one that you streamed recently that now I have my sights on. So thanks a lot again, Pete, for like destroying my wallet and creating like insane titles to add to my wish list. But the Survival Kids for Game Boy Color is something that looked really fun. It looked really interesting and unique, and that was definitely something that kind of rose to the top of my wish list for the Game Boy Color. That's a very ambitious game, and for people that don't know, Survival Kids on Game Boy Color is actually the predecessor to the Lost in Blue series that started on the DS, where it you are a kid on an island, um, where spoilers, you eventually find a little monkey friend, and you got to try and gather materials and Damn stay it, alive, Pete, spoilers. forage. <laughs> Well, I mean, if they've played Lost in Blue, they know what to expect. But just to give <laughs> I did Just to give them a, a scope of, you know, how ambitious this game is on the Game Boy Color, I'd say it's easily one of the most, like, crazy content pack games that you would not expect on the Game Boy Color that I've played. Yeah, so, um, so I'll keep my eyes out for that one. But the other one, like, near the top is just one. Like, there was one that you all... See, it's all it's all you. You're doing this to me. But Return of the Ninja game looked really fun, too. So I'm right, kind of looking at those two. That one is hard to find. That's a pretty... Return of the Ninja is um, from the same series as... Uh, what is it? Shadow of the Ninja on the NES. Mm-hmm. I always get the names mixed up with all these ninja games. Uh, but that is, like, a sort of, like... I don't want to say sequel, but it's sort of um, like a spiritual successor to it from Natsume. I mean, it looked like a lot of the same gameplay mechanics were there, but they added, you know, the the level design looks a lot more non-linear. Great game, amazing detailed graphics for Game Boy Color, really, really cool level design. Very difficult, though. I, I couldn't beat it. I tried. It was just really difficult. Um, so let's see. How about Sega Saturn? Let's see if you're going to pick the same game that I'm going to pick. <sighs> For the Sega Saturn? I mean, right now, I have... I'm kind of searching... Like, at the top of my wish list for the Sega Saturn, I just have a lot of the import shooters on there. So it's probably not the same games that you have your eyes on. But for right, for me right now, where I'm at with my Sega Saturn, because it's just like... I've gone through the the U.S. library and I'm like, okay, well, there, you know, it was more limited and there wasn't as many things on there. So jumping over to the import side, it's just all those expensive shooters, right? It's the let me see, what were the like Battle Gorega and yeah. Gun. Uh, I mean, ele- okay. but actually, at the very top of my list for the Sega Saturn is the import version of Elevator Action. That's the one I have my eyes on at the very top. Uh, right I was now. so lucky to pick that up many years ago. I think I paid like. 50 60 bucks for it that game's like what 300 300 something yeah ridiculous um for me for the u.s saturn i'd still say that my most wanted game is enemy zero and i'm actually kind of surprised that that game is still hovering around the hundred dollar price range yeah it hasn't Uh, jumped up like similar ones uh. like other sega saturn games you know games like uh, well lunacy just look at lunacy it's pretty much in the same vein of a game right i picked that game up for 30 bucks at a convention many years ago and now it's like what a two fifty three hundred dollar game. Fantastic game. I streamed it. Not worth that money though. I don't think. Nah. I you know I saw you playing that and I was thinking to myself that's one I could probably leave off my Saturn list. It didn't. I don't know what it was, but and I actually yeah. like like the precursors to those kind of games like D and D two. But I don't know something about that one. It just seemed really off. I mean, those are the only kind of fans I would recommend Lunacy to. Is people are people that are like hardcore into adventure style games like D. Uh, it's got a very creepy atmosphere to it. It's very unique feeling. 
but is it worth two or three hundred dollars? No, not unless you're hardcore into FMV style adventure games. Yeah, yeah like I'm short, trying to yeah. even decide right now if Burning Rangers is something I want. Like I know, I know, obviously it's it's a super rare, expensive game for the U.S. Saturn, and I've tried to stay away from like movie or videos and gameplay just to know what kind of game. But from what I'm seeing externally, from what I know, like screenshots, like I don't think it's going to be one of those games that I feel is going to be worth that price. I played a little bit of it. I need to get back to it eventually. I know people are probably like, what, you have Burning Rangers and you've only played a little bit? Yeah, but you got to remember, I bought most of these games when they were, you know, around 50, 60 bucks. So <laughs> to me, it's it, it's not the biggest deal that I haven't, like, finished them yet. Whereas if I, you know, if someone today spent $300 or whatever Burning Rangers goes for, you bet you're behind that they'd probably be getting their money's worth because they paid so much for it. So it's a little different for me where, you know, some, some people are like, whoa, you own these expensive games? It's like, yeah, but when I bought it, it wasn't as expensive as it is now yeah it's weird for you because since you have like a lot of the like the so-called heavy hitters it's almost like your focus of the titles are kind of like that tier underneath all those super rare expensive games Mm -hmm. the mid-tier the low tier these days because the the really expensive games i buy very seldomly because they're just crazy expensive so it has to be a game that i i really want but that's actually a question that we get asked later in the show that we'll delve a little bit deeper into um, but yeah, it's a little weird for me sometimes where I'll be going through my collection and I'll just randomly look up a price in my collection <laughs> for a game and I'm like, holy, sh-. like some of the prices that my games go for, I don't even realize. That's why people ask me how much my collection is worth. I, I tell them I don't know. You really wouldn't have I just haven't taken the time to go through and edit all up. I don't really care, to be honest. Like to me, my collection is not about how much it's worth. It's about no. what the games are. Um, so it, it, it's never been about like, oh, I want to brag about how much my collection is worth. No, it's just what games I have so that's why I never really know what it's worth but it's hard to know these days because the prices on stuff just keeps going up and up and up well everyone will let you know I find out a game I bought for 20 bucks is now suddenly worth $200 (laughs) it's like what the hell when did that happen Um, but for import Saturn I'd say my most wanted game is Super Tempo which is the Super Mm. Tempo on the 32X I actually own the game in the past but it was a sealed copy that I got in a lot that I bought of Japanese Saturn games Um, it's I think the lot that I got, it was like $200. It came with a bunch of heavy hitters with a sealed copy of Super Tempo. And I think I ended up selling my sealed copy of Tempo for $400, something like that. I mean, it's so about that I price think, now, right? Actually, yeah. no, no, loose. Or I mean, complete in box, not sealed, is 300 sealed. or something. Yeah. Complete in box is like 250 300 So I, I can never bring myself to open a sealed copy of such a rare game. So I decided to sell it. And eventually, maybe I'll get a loose copy. Do you have a bunch of other sealed, like, super rare games to your knowledge then still? Or that no, you want? I usually I try and get rid of. I started selling off a lot of my sealed games unless they have sentimental value a couple mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, I had some sealed PlayStation games and nothing of exceeding value. Like, a, I would say Super Tempo is always my most valuable. But I don't hold on to sealed games because I don't collect sealed games unless it's for a very sentimental game. Otherwise, I just sell them because I can't bring myself to open them, unless it's a cheap game. Yeah, someone had brought that up recently. I think Sigatas asked me if I was going to try to hunt that one down at some point. And, you know, when I looked at the game, I was kind of disappointed that they went isometric, sort of pseudo 3D instead of just a straight, you know, gorgeous, beautiful 2D side-scrolling platform game. For, for which game again? Super for te- Super Tempo, right? Yeah, it's it's side scrolling actually. Uh, oh, it is side scrolling. It, it looks okay. very similar to the one on thirty two X. Ah, damn it! Uh, it's still got that really psychedelic rainbow esque look to it. Ah, uh, okay. Now I may want it again then. Unfortunately, it's, it's very expensive though. Um, here's a great example though of my kind of like I never want to open sealed games. 
two years ago I was at a convention, or maybe it was last year, I can't remember, there were two copies of Wild Arms 5 on the PS2, both <laughs> of which were in the Cardboard Collector's Edition. One of them was sealed, one of them was open. Both of them, the guy was asking, like, 60 bucks. I talked him down to 55 but he was willing to sell me the sealed copy for the same price. Wow. I said, no, I'll take the open one, because I couldn't bring myself to actually open a copy of Wild Arms 5, so I'm like, no, I'll just... I'll just take the used one. Thing, Should've just bought just, both. Doesn't feel right. I should have bought both because that game has gone up in price. I know, as we know I now. Sold right? one for like one twenty or so. <laughs> um, let's see. Here's here's one. What about Nintendo sixty four? Is there anything that you're hunting for on that? Not really. I mean, I just started recollecting for. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, the Nintendo sixty four was not a big console for me growing up. Like, um, I remember buying. You know, Mario 64 and Pilot Wings at launch. And then, like, throughout the rest of my life or of my retro life when I was a kid with the N64, I didn't really buy that many games for it. It was weird because everyone I knew that I played game was, we all had an N64. But it was weird because since there were so many, you know, multiplayer couch play, couch co-op and couch versus centric games around those, a lot of us would buy one game and then we would play that game at that person's house. So someone bought GoldenEye. So we didn't bother buying GoldenEye. We would just play GoldenEye there. Someone else bought Smash and we would go to their house. So for me personally, like I, I just didn't buy a lot of games for the Nintendo 64 and I wasn't really the biggest fan of it. I mean, I love Mario 64, but it looked always to me, it looked like every game thereafter that was released. It just didn't even live up to that game. So it's full. It's fun now. I got my RGB modded N64 so I could stream it now. So I've been in the process of diving, you know, headlong into the system and buying games, but I, I couldn't see any games that bubbled up to the surface that I thought, ooh, these have to be my must-haves. Like, I think the la- the only game that was like a must-have that I was looking at was the import version of Sin and Punishment, which I just picked up. It was like $40 complete in box, and it's on a, it's on the way now. And then outside yeah, of I, that... I actually downloaded that. That's on the Wii Virtual Console, actually. That's how I played my copy of... Uh... Sin and Punishment. Oh, really? And uh, of course, it's a, it's a. Is it the translated version then that they did for I that wrong? Oh, I'm trying to remember. It was so long ago. I think it was actually still in Japanese. Really? I think I could be wrong on that. I could be wrong. No, maybe it was translated. It was so long ago, bovine. I can't remember. I actually beat the damn game, and I still can't remember. Is it a good game? Because I'm kind of looking forward to playing it. But and before people cry wolf here, they're like, "Oh, but Pete, you don't do emulation. That's emulation." Here's the thing: <laughs> if it's here officially released on a console, and if I pay money for it. I'm okay with that because <laughs> it's still a decision that I have to make, especially if it's for a game that um, is not easily available otherwise. As long as I'm paying money and officially supporting whatever developer or publisher is releasing it, that's fine. Just See, folks, this anybody... is how Pete treads that gray line of you know emulation and real hardware. So <laughs> you heard it here limited, first. You know, you got to put a money boundary there. Okay, <laughs> if I'm paying money, then you know I'm not going to download everything under the sun because it'll cost me a fortune. So. <laughs> That's that's the way I look at it. But yeah, in terms of the N64, I mean, outside of the Sin and Punishment game that I got, I like I was gonna start looking into the imports and see if there were any exclusives there. It didn't seem that many. And then on the U.S. side, you know, even there, I don't. I mean, I have I got a copy of Conquerors like early, and you know, I have no desire to play that. I just got it because it was a decent price, and I, had, I think it really has more to do with just my my ineffection for that system. But you know, as I go through it, I'm finding good games. Like I bought both the Chameleon. Uh, twist games and they seem like really fun 3d platformers which is odd because i'm not the biggest fan of 3d platformers but in terms of games for the 64 i can't really think of too many beyond those that i've already picked up within the last you know couple of months my most wanted game for 64 for years i've just been trying to hold out on getting a complete copy was for chameleon twist 2 not the Mm -hmm. first one the second one because i just like the way that game really looks visually very colorful 
Um, but it's it's one of the more hard to find complete in box games on the N64. Let me put it to you this way: I've been going to conventions now, like multiple conventions every year for the past few years, and I've never seen a complete copy of Chameleon Twist 2 for sale. Cart only copies, sure. They're all over the place for the most part, but a complete copy, hard to come by. I'm looking the spends around 75 to 80. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they go north of 100 a little bit. So you know, and, and that's not even the highest value completed box in 64 game, right? No, yeah, it's just the one that I want to kind of play the most. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard to get. I'm not going for those super expensive, super rare N64 games. Um, I mean, there's a couple of others that I'd like to have, like Duck Dodgers looks like a really fun platformer mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm going to be on the lookout for this year. Um, Starshot, another really rare, obscure 3D platformer. Um, mostly 3D platformers that I don't have are what I'm going to be looking for. Yeah, I mean, you're going to love Chameleon Twist. Like, I, I I streamed the first one, and I was I was going through, and it was really fun, like the movement one. But then I, I popped in the second one off stream just to kind of compare, like, what they improved. And, Wow. Like you should pretty much just skip the first one because the second one is just like a fixed deluxe super you know much better move, moving version much better playing version of the first one you'll love yeah, the I, movement there I rented the first Chameleon Twist when I was younger and I remember thinking it was okay yeah and I remember seeing video of Chameleon Twist too it almost didn't look like the same damn game because it looks so much better so yeah it just I'm moves. hoping to find that this year uh, yeah it looks good so I can't oh, wait to see you yeah. play that you'll have fun you'll probably turn that into a speed run candidate I'm it sure. looks like a very fun speed run game <laughs> and the thing that I determine if a platform would be a fun speedrun game is first of all it needs to be relatively short mm-hmm. you know maybe less than 45 minutes in length um and it has to have fun movement and the thing about chameleon twist 2 is you're like zipping around with your tongue at really fast speed so you're like grabbing on the objects and just zipping around these levels super fast and that game meets that criteria so. yeah i mean it's all advanced techniques too like when you see like the videos you've seen of them speed running like the moves they're not really easy moves to pull off either so like everything you see that's happening there with the speed run it is insanely technical and proficient in terms of like the movement that has to be you know invoked to like get them to move around like that it's nuts are there any other systems that you can think of that you have like a game or two that you're really after <sighs> I mean, Anything there's a lot I still need on the base systems, like on the Genesis, the Super Nintendo, the Nintendo. You know, I'm not going for complete. I'm not going for complete on any of these systems. I just want to get all the games that I feel look interesting. And like on the Genesis, Crusader Senti is super high on my. You know, I mean, that's just because it, the game itself it just reminds me so much of like Beyond Oasis and like just a really solid action adventure game. But God, a the lot cost. of people compare it to like. So it's pretty much like a lot of people say it's like the link to the past of the Sega, Genesis, Sega. Yeah. which I hear from people that have played it. It's not really a completely fair comparison. I hear it from what I've heard because I haven't played it. Hmm. Um, it's very puzzle heavy, very story heavy. Apparently there's a lot of text in the game. I could be misremembering, but it's not as close to as old as you would imagine. Just graphically, it's very similar. I mean, to me, it looks like it has more depth, like in terms of like you know when you look at an overhead adventure game and i to me i kind of judge it by how much of a tilt it has whereas zelda is kind of like a straight you know from top looking down senti looks like it's kind of shifted up a little bit so that your perspective is more i don't know it, it lends itself it lends itself to give more depth like when you're in the battles and you're figuring out puzzles like to me it looks like a completely different game than zelda so i know it probably sounds silly for two of us to be talking back and forth about a game that we're actually we haven't played and we're not even sure about but see that goes back to what we were discussing earlier when we finally eventually maybe get our hands on crusader of senti we can see if it lives up to our hype and expectations sure we can slap on an emulator right and just play it and find out that gee maybe it's not worth the price but Mm -hmm. just that years and years wait because i've been waiting for 
Crusader of Senti for years, mm-hmm. and I will always have this image in my mind, burned into my mind, <laughs> where I was at a convention, I think it was a PAX, and I was in there because I had a media pass before the show door, uh, floor opened, and there was a video game vendor, they went retro games, and there was a boxed, mint box copy, no manual, of Crusader of Senti for a hundred bucks. Ugh. But it was snatched right from under me. It hurts. Like, right there I saw it, and then I, uh, the person right in front of me just grabbed it and they got it for a hundred bucks. <sighs> like, he he asked, I saw it, and then the other guy was like, how much is that? The guy's like, a hundred? He's like, I'll take it. I'm like, fuck. Only <laughs> I was like ten <laughs> seconds earlier. Ten seconds, I would have bought it instantly because the box alone is worth like two hundred dollars in that condition. How many Even years ago was then, this? The game was expensive. Wait, how many years ago was that? Three or four years, I'd say. Oh man, even back then. Yeah, it, it was a steal. So ever since then, I've I've always just told myself like, just keep holding out. Maybe you'll find it. Because even back then, a box copy with a cart that was probably worth like two fifty, mm-hmm. two hundred. God, yeah. I mean, so, like on the yeah, Super I mean, Nintendo. That, that wait, that anticipation, where eventually we'll get it. Whether or not it's worth the price, we'll find out. But yeah, it's like even more so now sure. because it's becoming more unattainable. I'm making, I'm pushing myself against even booting it up on a ROM or looking at any more videos of gameplay. I'm just resisting it because I want, I'm building it up in my head, right? To be what I hope it will be. And, and that's like, it's a really cool feeling to just, but then do, that you, do you ever, do you ever feel though that if you spend a lot of money on a game that you, it kind of like, Makes you a little bit more like pillowy in terms of like, hey, I want to try and justify the money I paid for this game. So I'm going to try and view it in like a little bit of a better light than I normally would have because I spent so much money and I don't want to admit that this game is kind of hot garbage. Oh, Do you ever feel nature. that way with some games? It's human nature for that, right? I mean, it has to be. Like based on some of the prices that I've paid like within the last couple of years for things. Like if I look at the highest prices that I've paid for something like... And it's unfortunately it was during that time where I was doing you know I was doing the cheating style research where I was like playing it on emulator looking at information. So then, like if I paid five hundred dollars for a copy of Panzer Dragon Saga, like I already know that that's gonna be worth it because I've already kind of delved into it enough and played it a little bit to know that once I actually sit down and play through the real copy, it'll be completely worth five hundred dollars to me. Now you know that may not be the case for other people, but I know for myself it's definitely worth it in terms of. The cost I paid for what I need to, you know, get for that game. I mean, in my case, does price determine impressions on the game? I mean, absolutely. But I think that also has to do with the fact that if I invested so much money into a game, I'm more inclined to analyze the game on a deeper level to kind of look for more aspects and elements of the game that are a redeeming quality. Mm -hmm. Because I invested so much money, so I'm going to be even more sort of apt to, uh, apt to look for those little details that kind of help it stand out. Whereas if I paid five bucks for it, I might glance over those things because I'm just like, ah, whatever, five bucks. But because that game was maybe 200, I'm going to look for each and every little thing that I can <laughs> squeeze out of that game to tell people that, yes, I feel okay with spending this money on this game. It's not fake. It's not fake impressions. It's not like I'm giving fake impressions of like, oh, this game is grand and jolly. It's just you're looking yes, closer. It's expensive and rare. Right. It's I'm looking closer. I'm, I'm magnifying that <laughs> game as freaking close as I can get to squeeze out every last ounce of what you're like. Well, the pixel work on this bush here. I've had is to really, really squeeze. I've had to really squeeze sometimes. <laughs> it, it's helped me kind of analyze games in a different light, not just for expensive ones, but lately I've been noticing, you know, more and more. 
just little details in games that I never really paid attention to. I was going to say, I think I do that with dollar GBA games, but I think it has more to do with the fact that it's just a bad game and I'm looking for any redeeming value, not so much a justification of price thing. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's some nice uh, animation there on that running, you know? It's like, you just look for anything. It's like, whoa, this isn't that shitty of a game in production. Yeah, I mean... But- and it's scaring me too because as we move into like you know we're getting closer to Portland Retro Gaming Expo which is the one I really earmark myself to go to look for games like I'm really scared now because I'm at the point in my collections where you know I have most of the main stuff I have most of the first or second and third tier stuff but now I've got this hit list of just these insane high dollar value games and I I don't know what my ceiling is will be for some of these titles in terms of this anticipation so like some of these ones I talked about you notice I only I only pointed out like the low tier stuff. I mean, outside of the second import Saturn stuff, but I'm trying to avoid like that really top tier. Like I don't have a copy of Magic Knight Rares for the Saturn. I've never played it. I don't know what it's about. I know it's one of the highest price titles for the Saturn, but I don't know if I'm gonna be able to bring myself to you know pull the trigger on those games just because I'm at the point now where it's like all of those high dollar ones are still sitting there waiting for me to get. I think this is a good point, too, where I want to interject another question that we had from a listener. Since it is on topic, we might as well bring it up now. It's from David Oyes. Um, David asks, he's recently gotten into collecting for PS1 and was hoping to hear some of your advice and experiences with buying rare and expensive games you want, which we've kind of been going over. But he, he more importantly asked, not just for PS1, but he says, do you typically wait for a really good deal? Or do you just jump on it at the current price because you fear the price may go up even higher? Or do you tend to avoid the rare and expensive games altogether? So, for me, as you can tell, some games I've been after for many years, like, for example, Crusader of Senti, I remember times where I could have bought that complete box for $100 on eBay, and I said, no, you know, I'm going to wait and just hold out and see if I can get it cheaper down the line. Well, you see where that ended up. However, sometimes patience pays off. These days, though, I feel like patience doesn't really pay off. I think in the past it did because prices weren't so high, but things have just been going up and up that I've found that over the years waiting to get a game has actually been to my disadvantage because very few games are dropping in price. They're just going up. So these days, typically, I'm more inclined to buy a game that I know is pretty hard to come by at a price that normally I might not pay. Maybe it's about $10 over what I would actually pay mm-hmm. for the fear of more the big jump. this. Like, you know, all it takes is one YouTube video where someone highlights the game or someone streams the game or ends up in an AVGN episode. You know, that's all it takes, and then suddenly the game is double in price. Or it doesn't even take that. Certain games on eBay, someone just notices, like, oh, this is a pretty decent game. Oh, wow, this game's only $20. And then they start snatching up the copies, and they start artificially increasing the prices. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you have a game that used to be $20, and now you can't get it for anything less than 100 prime example of that is a game on the Game Boy Color that I've been after for several years. It's an import called Samurai Kid, side-scrolling action platformer game. Used to be able to get a complete copy of that for between $20 and $40, and I just never really... I was like, oh, I'll get that eventually, but not right now. I'm not in a dire need to play it. Suddenly, sellers in Japan have caught on to the fact that the game is kind of visually pretty stunning, and it looks like a pretty decent game. It's playable by people without knowing Japanese. You can no longer buy a game, uh, a cart of that, or a complete box copy for pretty much anything less than $100. Why? Because they bought up all the copies and they're just inflating the prices. Nobody's buying them for that price. In fact, no one was buying the game when it was $30. <laughs> so now, of course, no one's paying $150, $130 that they're asking for a complete copy. 
But all it's going to take is for that one person that doesn't realize that this game is not worth that much. They're going to buy that one copy for 130 and boom, there you go. There's the price of this game for the future, and it's only going to go up. So, yeah, it can be a little scary, so that's why if I see a game for a good price, especially if it's a game like an import, typically imports, there's maybe one or two available at a time for some of the more uncommon games. I will snatch it up, even if it's for a price that normally I couldn't see myself realistically paying, but if I know it has the potential to go up in the future, I'll buy it. Yeah, it's weird. And for me, you know, David, just to answer his question, I have kind of these games set up in tiers in my mind. Like, I have this unattainable tier where there are games that are just, they're never going to go down in value. They seem to be increasing, even though they're super high. And those I pretty much have just said, look, you're not going to pay the market rate because it's so insanely high. However, you'll keep an eye on, I'll keep an eye on them in case I see something you know, that pops up somewhere low. Obviously, there's always that tier. Then I have that second tier where I've identified a bunch of games that seem like, that appear, I gotta say appear, based on, you know, two years of data or whatever I use. But games that have basically appeared to have leveled off and topped off. And they don't look like they're gonna go up or down. So games in that range, like Ninja 5.0 for the Game Boy Advance. Like everyone knows it's sitting around 150 to 175. Loose card, obviously, right? For me, I'm gonna buy a loose card. And... For those games, I'll just keep an eye out. And if I can get something in that tier for maybe 5, 10, 15% less than fair market value, I'll jump on it. But I won't pay the, the average rate just because I know it seems to have like topped off. Like Dragon Force for the Sega Saturn also appears to be one of those games. Like in my head, it looks like, okay, it's hovering at 160, 175, you know, 200 for a super clean copy, but it doesn't appear to be going up or down too much. So, so I have these games in tiers and in my mind, you know, I've tried to keep a track of which ones are at which tiers. And when I'm searching around either at conventions or, you know, just eBay browsing around, like I'll look for those ones that have minor price variations and then grab them based on that. Sometimes patience pays off though, because um, every once in a while you'll just find someone that lists something on eBay well below the price that it normally goes for. Best example for me is, uh, the Sega Saturn version of Batman Forever, the arcade game, uh, where normally the Sega Saturn version of that was selling for like 120 to 150, mm-hmm. and I managed to snag a 75 dollar complete copy simply because like the the case was cracked a little bit, but mm-hmm. you know all you do is just whip out one of your replacement cases and boom, there you go, it's suddenly worth 150 dollars. So sometimes you really gotta keep your eyes peeled for stuff like that, and just a little heads up for those of you. That are into Sega CD or Sega Saturn collecting those cl- those cases that those games come in, um, sort of like proprietary to those systems only. They're very hard to come by these days anymore. They're getting cracked more and more. So if you ever ever see if it's a sports game, anything, if it's cheap at a convention for like a few dollars or five dollars, buy that shit, gut it, because it's getting really hard to find nice condition cases for your Saturn and Sega CD games. Um, so if you ever see like a lot on eBay for like say I don't know, ten sports games for like sixty bucks or something, maybe consider buying that because that's just some stock cases that you can swap out, or maybe you buy a rare game that is at a twenty percent discount because it's got like severe cracking on the disc, I mean the the case, and then you can just swap it out easy enough with one of your replacement cases. Yeah, it's funny to me that sellers will drop price on a cracked case, like and, you know not talking about the rare ones, but even like regular 
you know, Saturn games or dual disc like Dreamcast games, they think like a crack is like a death knell for that item and they'll drop the price. But you can replace that with a standard double CD, you know, normal music CD case. So it's kind of strange how you'll run into sellers like that where they believe the case is like specific to those games when in fact they're just standard cases. I think it just comes down to inconvenience for the buyers. So they're discounting the game based on the fact that you know, that now means that a buyer will, for one, need to have a replacement case, and two, is now going to have to go through the trouble of swapping it out, which isn't the biggest process in the world, Mm -hmm. but if it's a rare game, it can be a little scary swapping around that kind of delicate backing art and side art. So I think it just comes down to, like, I need to sell this. I don't feel like doing it myself because I don't have anything to swap it with, and there you go. Yeah, the other big success I've had with expensive games that I've been targeting is if you... What some sellers will do is that they'll put a lot together with, like, one expensive or rare game and then they'll surround it with a bunch of garbage but you can kind of take advantage of that too because you can purchase a lot and let's say the price of the game the rare game is two hundred dollars and the entire lot of that game plus seven others is like 215 for a bite now i mean it's obviously worth it to just grab it pay the price of what the game is worth but then you know try to sell back the other ones or just grab those other ones at a cheaper like i've run into a lot of lots like that where they just they surround like a really good rare title with a bunch of garbage but and you can always work it out to your advantage there too as well and that actually kind of segments perfectly into a new segment that i wanted to introduce in this show um where i thought it would be kind of fun for bovine and i to go over some of our recent ebay purchases ones that are already known if you watch our uh, twitch streams or maybe we've revealed that in the past uh, some that maybe are not revealed in the twitch streams quite yet so i guess i'll start so i can give bovine a second to pull this up because i didn't <laughs> give him advance notice on this um so I finally got a disc-only copy of Rule of Rose for my October Halloween stream. Uh, because oh, nice. I, uh, I had some eBay credit um, from a couple of months ago from, like, eBay Bucks and stuff. So if, if you don't know what eBay Bucks are, you get 1% back on all of your eBay purchases for the span of three months. And sometimes they run promotions where you get between 8 and 10% back. So, you know, if you buy a couple of nice things on eBay in that three-month span, sometimes you can get some nice credit. And I had about $50, $60 worth of credit one month, and somebody had listed a case in manual only for Rule Rose for 75 So I'm like, you know what? Um, this expires, you know, pretty damn soon. I need to use this. So I used it on the case of manual and got it for, you know, almost next to nothing. So I'm like, all right, now I just got to keep an eye out for a disc. Easier said than done. It actually was way more challenging than I thought it would be. <laughs> Not many people list good condition disc only copies of Rule of Rose for a decent price. Um, they've ranged anywhere in the price of like 100 to 160 selling, which is kind of weird because complete in box copies of Rule of Rose can range on the very low end like 170 to 250 depending on condition so i got my disc only for around the 125 130 ish range so the way i look at it it's pretty much like yes if you don't include the the little discount that i got on the case of manual it's about a 200 190 copy of rule of rose but if you include the discount I think I did fairly well. I mean, maybe about, let's say, 140 for a complete copy. I've heard this game does not have good combat at all. I don't think I've ever heard anybody praise the combat in this game. <laughs> I was going to say, it better be a I've damn good all game. <laughs> all gameplay, yeah. I mean, but I'm looking forward to it because it looks very bizarre and kind of creepy. So I think it'll be a good game for Halloween. So heads I- up. On Rule of Rose, it'll be played in October. I have the spidery sense tingling telling me that that game is not going to be that good. I don't know what it is. Believe me, I'm ready for a disaster, but I can always sell it back. I'll just hold on to it until next Halloween when the game skyrockets in price again, which is why I'm trying to get it now, by the way. Because any 
uncommon to rare horror game. Once you get into sort of like that September, October, especially in October, like the prices of horror games kind of, I'd say go up by like 25% at least. Yeah. I saw that happen with pretty much a bunch of titles I was after, like Haunting Ground and Kuon. The price goes way up. So if you're going to buy horror games, you're best off to do it now before it's too late. Um, let's see. Couple Those games, games in general just seem to hold their values. Since Bovine was talking about lots and, you know, lots of games um, where you pick up a bunch of games where a couple of them there are kind of worth a decent amount and then you, you know, maybe sell some of the doubles you have or games you don't want. I picked up a lot of PSP games. Um, I sent an offer. The guy was asking 100. I sent an offer for 80. Oh, no, I originally sent an offer for 75. He declined it, and then I countered with 81. I <laughs> he accepted 81. But I got Midway Treasures 2, Namco Museum, Greatest Hits, Taito Legends, Power Up, Metal Slug Anthology, Capcom Classics Collection, uh, something? I can't see what that subtitle is. Reloaded, it looks like. Uh, Ghosts and Goblins, Monster Hunter Freedom 2, Monster Hunter Freedom, Untold Legends, and the sequel to Untold Legends, Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, Castlevania Dracula X Chronicles, Dungeons and Dragon Tactics, and Lord of the Rings Tactics. So for $80, the way I looked at it, I looked up the prices, because this is what I do. I already own Castlevania Dracula X Chronicles. I already own Ghosts and Goblins. Um, so the way I looked at it is, you can get about $30 for Castlevania, and you can get about $30 for Ghosts and Goblins. So, were all the other games worth 20 bucks? I'd say damn so. Because um, I looked up a couple of them, and they were, you know, in the realm of 10 to 20 $15 each. So I'm like, you know what? I'll sell off these two games, or trade them, or whatnot, and pretty much get a little stack of free PSP games. So that was a pretty good deal. Um, another lot that I found off stream that I got in the mail recently, $14 shipped, free shipping, $14. I got Xbox original copies of MTX Motocross or Motor something, can't read that, <laughs> Genma Onimusha, Robocop, America's Army, Full Spectrum Warrior, Tao Feng without the manual or the cover, which I hear is a absolutely horrible game. Madden 07, because we all need a copy of that. Gotta add it on. It's just going to be something that I gut and use for something that needs a green box. Toka Race Driver 3, Silent Hill, Restless Dreams, Drag Racing, and Mech Assault 2. But for 14 freaking bucks, I mean, for the fact that it comes with Silent Hill 2 and Genma Onimusha, that alone paid for this entire lot. Wait, where'd you get that lot? Was that on stream or off? That was off stream. I just so happened to catch it. Keeping those Kidding good me, ones to yourself. In an instant. <laughs> yeah, that would have been. Well, I, I just got lucky. I think it was late at night. It got listed. Um, and then this one I got on stream. I got a complete, pretty nice condition copy of Castlevania Bloodlines on the Genesis for sixty-five dollars shipped. Yeah, that was a good one. Copy edition. Normally, complete in box copies of this on the low end will go for about seventy. On the higher end, though, they go for like one to one twenty. So I think I made a pretty good deal on that. And then lastly, I got a lot of PS1 games. This was also from on stream. This was a great deal. Uh, let's see. It was $23 shipped, and it came with a copy of... I'm trying to blow up this picture. Bugs Bunny and Taz Time Busters. That game alone is $15 to $20, so that right there is almost the entire price of the lot. Nuclear Strike, The Great Beanstalk, which is a Tiny Toons adventure, uh, kind of like point-and-click style adventure game. 
saltwater sport fishing, it's like whatever. The Grinch, for whatever reason, the Grinch on PS1 goes for like 15, 20 bucks. Tiger Woods, blah, blah. And Spider-Man 2 Enter Electro, another 15 to $25 game. So you tell me. And disc-only copy is safe, and so filter Warhawk. So I can just pawn those things off somewhere. But that just goes to show you, like, you can find a lot where one, maybe two of the games pay for the for everything. Lot of every, yep. stuff. So you either you can look at it from a value perspective where let's say that you wanted to pick up if I was at a convention, would I buy some of these games? Absolutely. I'd buy Bugs Bunny. I'd probably buy The Grinch. I'd probably buy Spider-Man and probably The Great Beanstalk. So, even if I don't sell any of these games, I totally made out. So, what about you, Bovine? Did you pick up anything decent? Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of collections. Actually, right before that, there was one question I want to ask you. How how good are you at about reselling back those those games in those lots though <clears throat> like how well are you in terms of like how backed up are you or do you get those things back out and sold in Not time so much anymore sometimes usually i try and sell them off as soon as possible because i start to grow attached to games that sit in my collection for a while mm-hmm. so it's best off for me to try and like trade them or sell them pretty soon that way they don't sit in my collection. Especially if I play them, I'm less inclined to sell them because then I have somewhat of an attachment to it. It's your game now. Or just because it's my game now, right? And that's why sometimes in the past I've been able to sell off some of the more rare games in my collection. Like I sold off Gotcha Force um, in the past because I hadn't played it yet. And I wanted some extra pocket change for a convention. And I figured, well, I could always rebuy this game down the line. I haven't played it yet, so there's no attachment to it. So I'll just sell it off now. And I did that for... Faselli, I think is how you pronounce it, in the New Year Geo Pocket Color. Oh, Faselli. Faselli, yeah, something like that. So sometimes I don't have a problem selling a game if I've never played it before. Sometimes. Um, But usually I'll sit on them, honestly, because I'm pretty lazy when it comes to listing and selling stuff or selling it on Facebook. Usually I sell a lot of stuff on Facebook these days because it's just a lot more convenient. Every once in a while, like a couple times a year, I'll just list like some stuff on there and, you know, I don't have to deal with the hassle of seller fees or anything like that just nice one the one give me the money ship your game there you go very cool uh, let's see in terms of the stuff i picked i mean i picked up a lot of stuff recently i mean I'm, i told myself i was gonna slow down this year and just kind of like take take a step back and play a lot of the games that i picked up from last year but for whatever the hell reason it just seems to be ramping up this year so whether that's a good or bad thing i don't know but and I've been trying to be smart and, and invoke a lot of these techniques we're talking about. So one of the things, like what I pick up, I picked up a loose copy of some uh, Game Boy Advance games. So one of the first ones I picked up, or one of the ones I picked up recently was uh, Godzilla Domination on the Game Boy Advance. And I think that this version was a way forward game. Like someone was ta- someone was talking about way forward games, and like I'm I didn't even know who the hell way forward was to be honest with you. So when people were saying, "Oh, it's a way forward game," I'm like, what does that mean? Like I don't you care. You know, way like, forward is just so. No- I can play a game and not realize that it's way forward until I see the animation, and I'm like, "Damn, this is some fine animation. This must be a way forward game because they kind of have this distinct. Just their their sprite animation is above and beyond anybody else at the time, especially for their handheld games. Like Shantae, you look at Shantae on the Game Boy mm-hmm. Color, that's way forward. Like, you could just tell the level of animation. Yeah, so I didn't even realize this thing about way forward. So now, you know, I was doing, like, a quick research and looking at, like, all of the games that they have available. And one of those games I was scrolling through the list was like, oh, they have a good, one of the Godzilla games in their, you know, library. So I had to grab a copy of Godzilla Domination, which is kind of like the... It's kind of like the... Um, the smash style like no more like king of monsters like where you just have godzilla with like one two or three creatures in a like pseudo what is it like 
like kind of a Streets of Rage like beat em up. Yeah. yeah. And it was and you're exactly what you're saying. Like the animation really grabs your eyes because like even just like the main walking animations for Godzilla and it's like cartoony style. It looked like it was based off of I think one of the animated series. I'm not sure. The art style is very I don't think it's based distinct. off of an animated because the shows have a very distinct style as well. I don't think it was based off of anything. I think it was just the kind of stylized um type of art style to kind of fit way forwards, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it it's it definitely cool. a unique look, and none of the other Godzilla games kind of look like it. So actually, Pata, I was streaming that this past weekend, and, and I actually finished it. Go figure. And you get it. I mean, the game is kind of simplistic. It looks really nice. So what nice. is the game five minutes long, Bovine? Uh, <laughs> well, if it's supposed to be five, it took me about 45 minutes to finish it. So, okay. but Yeah, I've been meaning to stream that game for a while, so I know me and you uh, both like Godzilla games quite a bit. So I was going to say, it's worth good. it. It's worth it for the last boss. So if you take time to play it one of these days, just, you know, make sure you get to the end of that game. I mean, it won't take too long, obviously. So if you but, can do it, I can do it. Yeah, I know. It'll take you about just, 10 just minutes, kidding. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but then, you know, there's been a lot of lots I've been picking up. So I, you know, there's like these huge 3DS lots since I'm really starting to dive into that library. But I want to talk about some of these other lots that I picked up that maybe didn't have as much attention, but there was, a lot of like loose NES games I picked up. Like I've been after um, Gargoyles Quest too for the NES for quite a bit because I was a big fan of you know the character Firebrand, even though he was a bastard in Ghosts and Goblins. But the fact that you know they did an offshoot of games with him and first the Game Boy, you know the normal regular Game Boy game, they had this kind of like Zelda Two style game where you had these overhead maps mixed in with side-scrolling action sequences. One of my favorite games for the Game Boy as a kid, so I was really after the Nintendo sequel, Gargoyles Quest 2, which is hovering around, I don't know, $80, $90 game. So I've been trying to find that one for a while. So scary. Complete copies are like 200 plus now. Yeah, which is why I can't, I just can't do the complete because of that, right? It's like, I want the game I want to play. So I found a lot with it. It was Gargoyles Quest 2, and then it was surrounded with a bunch of loose crap, which, you know, I was talking about earlier. It's like, okay, well, the price of the lot was about you know, a hundred bucks. So if Gargoyles already is 80, what are these other games that are in here? There was a copy of Punch Out without Mike Tyson. There was Power Punch 2, um, you know, Golga 13, Pac-Man, Magmax, Dragon Warrior, some throwaway games. But just the fact that the price of it was pretty much worth for, you know, Dragon's, um, Gargoyles Quest 2 in one of those games definitely made it easy for me to just do like a, like a bid for that. I wanted for like a hundred bucks. So it turns out really, turns out good for me. And like, I found out later that the Power Punch 2 game was worth like 30 loose already as well. So definitely nice. worth it there. Any Let's other see. lots that uh, are worth mentioning? What was that now? All right. So I think we're going to get on to the games that we've been playing recently because we're already uh, quite quite <laughs> deep into the show here. Into the time. We're actually <laughs> oh, yeah, recording this, right. by the way, at like 3.30 in the morning right now my time. I'm... I'm <laughs> I'm feeling all right, but we're, uh, let's just say that Discord has not been treating us, not so much Discord, but man, we have been having some issues recording this podcast. We're for whatever reason, it's, it's way, it's way more difficult than it should be. Um, but anyway, I guess why don't you start, Bovine? We'll, uh, we'll just go over a few of the games that we played recently. Yeah, how about, you know what? Let's start with Godzilla on the PS4. Yeah, let's start, us. please, Godzilla. <laughs> Since both of us played that quite extensively, I've streamed that game for like, 13 or so hours uh, between last episode and this episode. Why does podcast. everyone want to hate that game so much? I don't get it. <laughs> you don't like you don't like Godzilla? 
No, I said, why does everyone else want to hate that game? I love that oh, game. Oh, <laughs> oh, I thought it sounded like you said I hate that game. No, it's, no, no. Uh, I mean, I've I've done a video on this in the past on YouTube, which I think people thought I was trolling, but I. I put out like a 20 minute video trying to explain that the game is not as bad as you would think. So Godzilla on the PS4, for those of you that don't know, exclusive to Sony. It never released on a Microsoft or Nintendo console or anything like that. Came out in 2014. It's actually just over the two year anniversary of its release date. In Japan, it released on the PS3 and PS4 and other territories. It was only PS4. Simply just called Godzilla. Nothing else. Just, just Godzilla. The, the cover is just black and white Godzilla with a red. Awesome line. cover. Kind of hard awesome. to miss on the shelf. Yeah, very cool cover. I actually have my copy signed by the original suit actor of Godzilla. He's like 90-something years old now, and the original suit actor of Jet Jaguar, because I met them at a convention. No way. I know. I love it. I decided this cool stuff. One of my coolest signed things in my collection. Because I'm like, who the hell is ever going to have him sign this? How many people were in that line for those guys? That's what I want to know. Sadly... Not a lot. Ah, oh, that sucks. There, yeah, there was almost like, there was almost no one in the line. It was kind of sad. I mean, the convention, it was one of the first things I went to when I went to the convention because I was afraid that there might be a line. So mm-hmm. maybe I went like super early and there was no line, but it's not like there was a line around the corner. Yeah, it was pretty much just like walk up, pay for, you know, whatever signatures you were getting. Um, I had him sign a photo too, so I paid like. It was 20 bucks a signature, so $20 for the photo, $20 for the game, $20 for Jake Jaguar. I would have so. killed for that. Yeah, no line, sadly. I guess people don't really, I don't know. But there is a Godzilla convention. I forget exactly where it is. It's like mid, mid-coast or something. West G-Con? Coast is that what it's called, you said? G-Con, yeah, where it's just nothing but Godzilla for a convention, and it's just... Godzilla vendors and Godzilla panels and Godzilla cosplays and it just looks like so much fun but it's just probably not worth the plane ride out to it <laughs> you know I mean I love Godzilla but for real for me to spend like hundreds of dollars on a plane ticket and then hotel costs for a Godzilla convention I'd have to be super hardcore and I've looked into collecting Godzilla stuff in the past like seriously considered it I spent about two weeks researching Godzilla toys and all the variants and all the like um, vintage figures and all the just all this different crazy stuff, and I was really close to getting into it. I actually bought some Gamera toys. That was sort of like my warm up because I was getting into Gamera as well. And then I'm like, you know what? No, don't have the space, don't have the money because it's pretty damn expensive for some of those toys. And thank God I talked myself out of that one. But there's God, this line cool. of um, like Japanese plastic, hard plastic figures, right? They're like. They're like models you put together. It's hard plastic snap, and they're all these Godzilla figures. Did you run into any of those in your research? Um, do you mean they're not like model kits? But you're talking about like the old vintage figures that are like really colorful. They've got rounded corners. They have jointed limbs, and they just no, no. These were like weird. they were like stat like you know those models you would build of like ships or planes that you would just glue or snap together like hard plastic. They had a series of those. I remember this vividly as a kid because, you know, I, I, mean, I love Godzilla growing up too. And I remember like my parents took me to some like Japan town in some city somewhere and they had, you know, these boxes of like pl- these plastic models and, and it was of Godzilla. And I was like, Oh my God, this is like the best thing ever. And when I brought it home, I like, I tried to put it together and I guess it was like too advanced for my age at that point or I needed like some cutting tools I didn't have or were they pre painted? 
they they were they were there was a base color and then you could accent it and like you know paint it the way it was so supposed it's pretty to much like a gundam model kit then just essentially yeah probably simplified where it's just you snap a few pieces together so it's probably more of like a a model kit that you would paint which i do remember seeing those on ebay in the boxes but those really aren't my forte yeah because i don't really want to have to paint and assemble something when it comes to, when it comes to a collectible i kind of want it to be fully already assembled, there. fully done fully painted yeah. Yeah, it feels a little weird to buy something that someone else painted already, and it feels a little weird to have something in my collection where the quality is altered based on my artistic ability. Mm-hmm. So I've never really been in the model kits. Um, I think the furthest I've ever got with a model kit was I, I did build a Gundam for Gundam Wing back in the day. I built a Death Scythe. Oh, God, it's been so long since I've watched Gundam Wing, but it was a Death Scythe custom, like the cooler version of the Death Scythe Gundam. Mm-hmm. I built one of those and kind of painted it and did some little detail work on there with pens, and I was really proud of it. it took for goddamn ever. Those things I mean, take forever. It was a very simple gun to build, but <laughs> Jesus Christ, I have a new admiration and appreciation for anybody that builds gun, uh, model kits, especially for Gundams. Jesus. I know. My, my coworker. I should really attempt one of those again one day. My coworker, she bought me, I told her that I was like trying to get into Gundam, and like she, her, her fiance was like really big into them. So I guess she went out and did the research and she bought me like these two huge Gundam kits. And I'm just scared to open them to even try to build them because I don't even know how the hell long it's going to take. That would make an amazing Twitch stream. Do you think so? Me destroying my Gundam model? <laughs> People do that. They stream Gundam like model building and it's kind of fun to watch. Yeah. Mine would be a tire firing process. Trust me. <laughs> snapping and losing pieces i know they're flying off i'm just cursing like god damn it like flew into my nes what am i gonna do with that little gun piece i will say though if like nintendo or sony or if any of them ever came out with model kits that were like pretty pretty in-depth pretty detailed i I might consider picking some of those up just for the fun of it because i'm not really into gundam much anymore Mm -hmm. so i'm just looking for a model that would you know take me quite a while to build anyway not to get too off topic yeah what are we talking about oh yeah godzilla (laughs) Um, so, the thing about this game is it got slammed when it came out. Very low Metacritic score. I think when I posted my video on YouTube, it averaged a 45, which is in my thumbnail, like the 45 Metacritic score. Um, but here's the thing. I can understand someone's hate for this game. First of all, if you're not a Godzilla fan, you're going to hate this game, most likely. There might be some circumstances where you can kind of enjoy it if you're in the fighting games or brawlers or beat-em-ups or something, but this is a game made by Godzilla fans for Godzilla fans. The best way that I sum this game up is that it's a Godzilla simulator. If you're used to playing the Godzilla games on like PS2 and GameCube, like uh, Godzilla um, All Out Melee or whatever the hell it was called, Godzilla Saves the Earth, stuff like that. Mm. If you like those games, go into this one very haphazardly. It's not the same. You gotta be cautious. It's not the same game. It's very slow. People are expecting a faster paced brawler, but you gotta think of the controls as though you're piloting an actual giant monster and i know this sounds so cheesy but the controls are sluggish you actually turn your monsters by pressing l1 or r1 to turn them it's separate controls to turn your monsters than the camera um, and then the attacks are very slow They're, they take forever so for example if you've got to fire godzilla's breath or something he's got the wind up it might take him a few seconds to do it if you're going to fly up in the air as say mothra or not mothra rodan it takes him a little bit of wind-up time to get up in the air, and he ain't zipping around that level. He's flying around like a suit actor as though he was held with strings and going as fast as he possibly could. Um, so it's it's very slow. It's very methodical. There are balancing issues, but I think it just basically comes down to, do you like Godzilla? If you say yes, okay, that's good. 
do you mind a game that's a little bit slow and methodical and unbalanced and you know not really rich in features and gameplay? If you're okay with that, then I think this would be a game for you. The single player, awful. I have no problem admitting that. It's very repetitive. Grindy. So grindy. Um, but the thing is about the single player, all you do is you just destroy generators. It's like, okay, start a level. The core concept is you destroy buildings to build up a destruction percentage um, up to 100 when you destroy everything in a level. Chaining together the destruction of buildings results in a higher fury meter. That fury meter ties into the height of your monster, so the more stuff you destroy and the, the better you're able to chain it together without dropping the combo of destroying buildings determines the height, thus determining the power and the defense of your monster so that later on you're able to take on harder fights and bigger monsters. And I am no stranger to being under-leveled and under-heighted, if that's even a word. <laughs> Under-heighted, under under-statted, we'll say. Because the other night I was streaming this game and I was stuck on a couple of fights for like a good hour plus because I was 80 meters up against a 100-meter monster and it took me forever to be able to beat them. So you destroy generators, defeat monsters, and then you just grind. Every monster you kill, you get a couple of experience points, we'll call them evolution points, that you can use to level up certain monsters uh, charge meters, they charge faster, you get extra meters, maybe get an extra move or two, and then you just rinse and repeat for pretty much dozens of hours. I've put probably more time into the online mode, but I've definitely put in at least two dozen hours into the single player, and I have yet to max out a single monster, just to put that into perspective for you. And these people online that just have every character maxed out all the way, I can't even imagine how many hours that yeah, takes. Yeah, there's people online with thousands of wins, and that's that's some dedication. It always surprises me when I stream this game, because you never expect people to be still playing this two years later, but no. Because here's the thing, the game has a horrible lobby system. It's three-player online, so it's a three-player free-for-all. There's no four-player, there's a two-player mode. The lobby system is horrible in that... You get matched with random people. If you want to play against friends, you can only play against one friend. You can't do a three-player match. So for our means and streaming, it kind of is unfortunate. Um, but it, it you, you play against these people that have thousands of wins. They destroy you because obviously they've mastered their character. They have it fully leveled up. Yeah, they're fully statted. Here's, here's the beauty in this game. It's just so much fun to play online. The fact... <laughs> The unfortunate thing is that you have to play single player to unlock monsters and level them up. But then the reward is that you get to play it online. And for some reason, these battles always come right down to the wire where you got people like dancing back and forth. Maybe dancing is not the right term. <laughs> Jotting. <laughs> plotting back and forth. Maybe flying back and forth. Floating back and forth, depending on what monster you're playing. Sidestepping and back it looks and forth. so ridiculous. But God, does this game make me laugh because these matches come so down to the wire. And it just looks ridiculous because it pretty much is a Godzilla movie come to life that you're suddenly playing in. Because the, the monsters like look like they're ripped straight out of the movies. I'm telling you. I don't know, Bova, maybe you want to speak to your experience on the online for this. Well, I mean, the thing about... I mean, well, first of all, it was shocking to me, right? Like, because it was, what, two years after when we fired it up for the first time to say that we were going to jump online. We just assumed we were going to be the only like three people to play that game. And then suddenly there was like all these players that were still grinding through and playing the game and just beating up on news but i mean here's the thing it's an ultimate fan service game for godzilla fans i mean really if you're a godzilla fan of any of any extended amount like growing up as a kid you need this game because of all the godzilla games out there 
that are available to play, you know, in video game form. I really feel this is the first game to truly capture the feeling of being Godzilla. Right? And, like, there's a lot of problems with the game. Pete's already pointed out a lot of them. Like, I thought there was a couple things that the developers missed out on. Like, they really had a chance to kind of, you know, move this game up to the next year. Like, they have this really interesting system during the single-player mode where they focus on who the current mayor or leader of the town is. Like, as you take your route through and, you know, you choose, like, your easier, difficult paths. But they have this, like, underlying component where the mayor can be switched out. Like, the leader of the town can be switched out. And based on, like, decisions they make, it could have affected things in the life. I mean, maybe they do. Like, I'm having a hard time trying to figure out exactly how that mechanic was worked into the game. Like, I feel that was a missed opportunity, that it could have been something more to the game because if anyone knows what the original movies are supposed to be like you know it's not just about godzilla beating up another big creature like there was this huge human element about you know humans versus godzilla nature versus man like and these themes that they really could have you know expanded upon in the game i thought they kind of missed something there and then the second thing i think they really missed out on and something i was excited about when i first booted the game is because you start with your base Godzilla at like what was it 50 meters or something like that and there's they make this big thing about the game where as you destroy things like people saying like you can grow and I thought to myself wow that would be really cool if I were to play a fight where I was extremely off scale of another you know kaiju so if I had my small base 50 foot you know 50 meter Godzilla and I ran into like a hundred meter Mecha Godzilla. Like I was hoping that the game would have really exaggerated the size difference because there's something about games that I love where the sense of scale is really off. Like that's why I love Shadow of Colossus. You know, you know, um, The Last Guardian. And I was hoping there was going to be a bigger difference in terms of the size of the kaiju's, and unfortunately that was not the case. But you know, again, despite all these flaws, I'm a huge Godzilla fan, and I love this game. I just love the fact that it captures everything that i would have imagined like a godzilla like you're saying godzilla simulator would be but if anything it's just complete fan service game for an old godzilla fan like myself because everything is accurate like the the cries of the monsters the movement of the monsters the attacks of the monsters they're all realistic none of them have attacks that you know they they wouldn't be able to pull off with special effects or practical effects in the movies so if you're playing as larva mothra guess what you're playing as a little (laughs) freaking worm where all you can do is roll around and shoot silly string you know and if you're playing as mecha king Ghidorah or something like that you're going to be able to zap like crazy electric moves uh you know raining down on your opponents and if you're you're playing as like Hedora, for example you're going to be you know pieces of garbage are going to be flying out of your body and you're going to float around really slow so it's all very faithful very much faithful to the films and the monsters and i think that's why you see so many people still playing this game online is just because the, the many Godzilla fans this is the dream the dream game that they've been waiting for is it the best game no could it be no. improved upon yes does it lack support yes they have no downloadable characters there's just no support after the game launched um, you know no DLC no nothing but it's kind of the game that they've been hoping for all the other games for Godzilla have tried different approaches to having you play a Godzilla game all of which usually speed up the pace, but Godzilla's never really been about speed. Nope. In the films, at least. It's always been about those slow, methodical battles, and there's finally a game that captures that. Now, as much as we're praising this game, I cannot safely recommend this to everybody. (laughs) Don't pay 60. (laughs) $60, I mean, here's the thing. The game is $60 on the PSN store. 
it goes on sale. You just actually missed a sale where the game is on sale for 15 You can get a physical copy of this game for between 15 and 20 ish dollars, I'd say, on eBay. Um, get it while you can, because I think years from now, this is going to be kind of one of those cult hit games where people are going to, you know, really be after this once the Godzilla fans discover it. And the price is probably going to go up. You know, it's going to take years, but this is going to be one of those games on PS4 that you can for sure count on being fairly uncommon and pretty expensive. I'm going to grab a second copy sealed just so I can get it signed by somebody down the line. <laughs> Why is the Japanese version so much more expensive? Is it just the cover? Uh, I'm not sure. Actually. Have you noticed that? Like, I was looking at look- prices for it, and the Japanese PS4 version of it like, goes, sells regularly for like $100 for whatever reason. Maybe it's even more uncommon. That's, that's really weird, unless there's some exclusive features in there that we're not aware of. I'm not sure. So yeah. people are actually buying it for a hundred, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, it's strange. So I, I thought because the cover is very different from the U.S. one, and it looks really cool. I mean, I actually really love the U.S. cover, but the Japanese one has its definitely its own style to it. So the next game that I wanted to talk about was one that I just played tonight, very briefly. I wanted to talk and mention Torque on the original Xbox. It's uh, it's an exclusive 3D platformer that never came out on PS2, never came out on GameCube, Xbox exclusive. The full title is Torque Prehistoric Punk. It actually kind of took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting too much going into this. It had some mediocre reviews. It has some camera problems where you can't fully rotate the camera. Some of the platforming can be a little bit iffy in terms of judging distance, but I really enjoyed it. It's a very impressive looking game where it takes place in, you know, your traditional settings of a 3D platformer. You got your jungle levels, your desert levels, your ice levels. your fire levels, and then eventually it gets all crazy and you start going into like medieval levels and high-tech levels and haunted levels. Like, pretty much, if you're doing a 3D platformer 101 and what environments you need in the game, this this game pretty much covers the gambit of them. Um, but the thing that really kind of made this game stand out to me were the visuals and the level designs were quite imaginative at times. Pretty colorful. A lot of very colorful, very beautiful-looking game. Um, for its time in 2005 when this came out, there were a lot of nice effects, like uh, water reflections, <laughs> reflections in ice of your character, um, sort of ambient lighting, just a very well-polished-looking game in terms of graphical fidelity. The levels are linear in quality. You're not going into this expecting like Mario 64 or any kind of free-roaming like Jack and Daxter-type platformer. It's uh, it's fairly linear. There's very little room for exploration. There are branching paths sometimes, but go into it expecting a linear game. The combat is kind of shallow. You're spinning some like bowler rocks that are on a string for pretty much the entire game. There's transformation aspects that predate Cameo, which are very similar to Cameo in that you can kind of change into different animal animals, uh, like a Yeti or an Armadillo or a flying squirrel of all things, though I feel like it's a little limited because you have to build up a meter by collecting collectibles that I think come a little bit too slow. And it would have been one of the best redeeming parts of the game if the transformations were a bit more... Necessary? A little bit... What's that? Necessary? Like if they had actually designed elements to really require those things? Right. I never really felt required to transform, (laughs) except for a very few situations where there were a lot of enemies on screen. And it would have been nice to have a charging meter that charged slowly over time so I can kind of use it more. Because they were kind of fun. The movement was good. Um, But it's a very straightforward kind of basic 3D platformer. But sometimes that's the kind of stuff I look for. You know, no gimmicks, no no crazy stuff, no over-excessive collectibles. And I'd definitely recommend it to anybody that has an original Xbox if you're (laughs) looking for a 
pretty decent 3D platformer, and it's not that expensive either. 2005, what were some of the contemporary 3D platformers that it was competing against at that time to kind of fall under the radar here? Like I've what, never Ratchet? really been a good person with dates, but yeah, you'd say like Jack and Daxter. Yeah. Uh, I can see how that would fall like, underneath. Um, Hell, even Microsoft themselves probably released other platformers during that year to kind of, you know, mask it. Believe it or not, there's not too many Xbox platformers. I mean, I don't know the year specifically, but the only platformers on the original Xbox that are somewhat exclusive are the Blinks games, Blinks the Cat, Voodoo Vince, um, Gunstar on the stream today reminded everybody of an exclusive called Sneakers that I don't know too much about. Uh, you know, you have other multi-platform games like the Vex game and Tie the Tasmanian Tiger. Was Malice around that same time, like too? Pack. What's that? Was Malice around that same time, too, or...? Uh, Malice was around the same time. Yeah, yeah that was Xbox and PS2. Um, so yeah, there, there really weren't too many exclusive 3D platformers or hmm. even third-party platformers on the Xbox for that matter. Because when you booted it up, I was like, I have no idea what the hell this game is. I've never heard of it, never seen it. <laughs> it's not It's not discussed all that often. I just think it's a game that a lot of people just kind of completely passed on. It didn't have any marketing from Microsoft, whereas a game like Blinks at least had marketing. Hell, there's merchandise for Blinks the Cat in Japan. <laughs> There was a plush doll for Blinks. So that just goes to show you that, you know, certain games received a bit more marketing than others. Yeah, I think that was because Blinks, what, first, it was first party for Microsoft at that time. That's why I do remember that same marketing push they had for it, even though it failed miserably. But I haven't played Blinks since I rented it when it came out. And I remember being kind of disappointed in it because I don't like my platformers to be heavily puzzle influenced. Mm-hmm. And the time shifting mechanic in Blinks the Cat was obviously pretty puzzle-heavy, and I, I kind of attribute my disdain for sort of these puzzle mechanics that deal with time-shifting elements to Blinks the Cat. Cause I <laughs> you blame Blinks for it all. I'm really enjoying it. So nowadays, when I play a game with the, the changing of time, I, I feel like it all dates back to Blinks, so maybe I should try it again and see if maybe I can change my perspective. <laughs> That's funny. What about you? Any games you want to highlight oh uh, yeah there was some games i mean i would love to talk about more godzilla because i did try out godzilla generations maximum impact which was uh import i think it was import i can't remember if it was import only or not but it was on the dreamcast and i played the import version of it and this godzilla game i mean if we're talking earlier about anyway you know i am going to talk about this is, godzilla is this game. the Screw simulator it. is this the simulator uh like it's kind of like a godzilla not simulator in the terms of like the ps4 game but more of like one where you're not directly controlling Godzilla? Yes. It, yeah, and I had no idea. Because when I looked at it really quick, doing my very quick research in my blind, before my blind play for it, I thought, oh, it kind of looks like, you know, Destroy, or Destroy All Monsters, Save the Earth series where you were going to be combating other kaiju, or at least it looked like you were in an environment where you would have control of Godzilla moving around and destroying, destroying cities and fighting. So I thought that's what it was. Now I plug this game in and I go through it. And I have no idea what is going on in that game for maybe the first hour. I'm not even joking. Like, I know immediately you have very, I mean, it's basically a rail shooter. You have a third person perspective behind Godzilla and you are Godzilla. But the only thing you have access to is a floating cursor. And I, I, I don't know what it, it was. Sounds but sounds horrible. It, you know what? Okay, so here's the thing. Yes, for that first hour when I was trying to figure out, because here's the most infuriating thing. 
my first instinct is that, oh, okay, so it's a rail shooter game and I just guide the cursor around because they were giving me these waves of enemies and tanks and choppers. So I said, okay, let me just try to figure out what they're doing with this uh, rail mechanic. Do they want me to go Panzer Dragoon lock-on style? Do they want me to go Machine Gun Operation Wolf style? Because there's only so many ways you can design that kind of game to be played. But I swear to God, for an hour, I could not figure it out. I didn't know what the hell I was doing wrong. I don't know what mechanic they wanted me to use because it was obviously you would be painting targets and then firing off Godzilla's fire breath. But for the life of me, I could not figure it out. Everyone in chat, we could not figure it out. Everyone was like, well, try this. Is it this kind of game? Do they want you to hold it? Do they want you to keep the cursor on it? Do they want you to paint the cursor targets? We tried everything to try to figure out how to play this goddamn Godzilla game. And we gave up. We said, look, someone just said, just look it up on YouTube. So when we went to YouTube, we ran into basically everyone with the same problem. No one knew how to play the game. It was unbelievable. So, but after some research, wow. we, I mean, it's, it's the most bizarre thing because you're presented with what looks like a very basic video game, or at least in terms of a design. And we just couldn't figure out the mechanics. And it turned out we eventually did figure it out. Like there's some very, timing specific movement to the controller relationship to the button presses like it's way it's so much more complex than it should have been but in a way as we were figuring out and learning kind of like this advanced way to play this what should have been an easy rail shooter game it actually ended up being pretty fun toward the end because there was a very there seemed to be like this very skill-based element on how to do like the firing off the lasers and aiming in at the targets it's a really odd game, but in the end, after the initial frustration, it turned out to be a pretty fun game, and I, I want to get back to it, because I think I ran out of continues. I was about halfway through the game by the time I ran out of continues, because I'd wasted all my continues in the first levels just trying to figure out how to play the goddamn game, but very, very strange game. But it, it ended up being very neat. Game though, right? It's it's pretty cheap, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's not expensive, so definitely. Well, I mean, because it seems like impossible to play for foreigners. I guess that's why. Yeah, and I, I think and it was I a launch why. game in Japan actually, so it was probably very much overprinted. Could you imagine getting a Dreamcast on launch day, and that's the game you get? <laughs> if I had to go through that initial frustration, yeah, that wouldn't have lasted very long. But honestly, if you spend some time with it, like it just because it is. It's using mechanics that I don't ever run into in this kind of game. So for that in itself, to try to be unique, I would give that game that amount of credit. So it was pretty fun in the end. But I'd love to see you try it and see what you think of it. Or just to see if you figure it out, too. Because, my God, it was it was a process. Well, if I see it for a few dollars at a convention, <laughs> pick it up. Yeah. Sometimes at conventions you can find some import games super cheap because... A lot of times, no one at conventions are looking to buy imports like that, so sometimes they just look to get rid of them for as cheap as possible. Yeah, I was actually kind of, uh, I was a little sad that, like, the last couple times I've been at Portland Retro Game Expo, like, I mean, there are some imports, it just wasn't to the level that I thought there would be, but... Well, it's so obscure that the sellers don't even bother bringing it to their booth because they figure that there's not going to be that big of an audience of people to buy them. Or they just don't even know how to, like, price it or something. <laughs> But let's see. So that was for the Dreamcast. Godzilla Generations Maximum Impact. I would recommend it for people, again, if you're Godzilla fans, or two, if you're just hard up for like Dreamcast imports. But um, I wanted to talk about this other game. So one of the games that I picked up, I, I had a I had a episode or I had a stream where I basically picked up a lot of Super Nintendo repros. So we were looking for good games that didn't have, you know, US releases or no English releases. So there was a bunch of these repros I purchased. And one of them I purchased was this front mission gun hazard game. Now the front mission series for people that aren't familiar, it's basically known as a, re you know, real time strategy game with mechs 
which is really cool. I mean, I highly recommend that series for anyone. I think the best version would probably be Front Mission 3 for the PlayStation 1. But what I didn't know is that this Front Mission Gun Hazard game, it's actually a side-scrolling, a side-scrolling mech shoot-em-up game. Which is really cool because I love I love games like that, like the entire series with Target Earth, Assault Suit Lanos, Assault Suit Balkan. That entire series have these very specific like way that the mechs look, the shooting mechanics go. And this game, as I was playing it, first I didn't realize that like this front mission gun has it exists in the front mission universe, <clears throat> not in the mobile suit universe. However, the game plays, looks, and moves exactly like all those other games. And little did I realize that even though it was made by Square, published as Squaresoft, it was actually designed by the same team that created those other games like Cybernator, not Metal Wars, but Cybernator, the Assault Suit Vulcan series games. So they look very similar. They play very similar. There's a lot of elements that are shared between those games, but it's very, it's very story heavy. So in this game, you basically have control of your mech and you can jump out of the mech with the little human in order to, you know, maneuver around like smaller areas, but really it's focused around getting your mech and leveling up and being able to beef up your mech or build bigger mechs. But the gameplay itself is very solid. It's just standard. Like if any of you are fans of Target Earth or Cybernator, this game will be right up your alley because it's side-scrolling, shoot them up, lots of cool weapons to equip, a lot of different um, like jumping and platform mechanics, really well put together. But the storyline itself was done really well. The translation seems to have been handled perfectly. And it's a super long game. Like I didn't know when you're first presented with the overhead map, you just move from point to point and then, you know, you go into the areas, you equip your mech and then you go through the side scrolling platforms. So this first area, you're escaping with the president and trying to get to the mountainside. And then when you get to the mountainside, you get to this other area of the mountain. And from there you go to the ocean. Like apparently there's like 90 plus levels in this level. So it's, or this game and it's going to go for a while, but like the, the only problem I had with it is that it seemed like you really needed to grind a lot in order to buy the upgraded weapons, get the new mechs. Like, it seemed like it was going to take a while. I played for a good two hours, and I was only able to buy, like, one extra gun. So, I mean, it's going to be some sort of a grind, but if you like that kind of game, like, I think it's going to be worth playing. If you're a fan of the Front Mission series or the Assault Suit Vulcan games, definitely worth a pickup, especially at a cheap $20 repro card price. So, See, I, I, anytime I see the Front Mission name, I always find it kind of intimidating because, I don't know, I never really truly get into that series. I tried Front Mission 3 very briefly, but I'm very kind of um, picky when it comes to my tactical turn-based RPGs, so I kind of always avoided the Front Mission games because they're very, the menus are very loaded with information. Pretty daunting. stats and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's a little intimidating, so... The fact it's that weird because it's a, not like that. It's, yeah, it's the first game I would recommend for people who don't want like the fantasy version of tactical strategy games, which predominantly that seems to be the genre that most tactical strategy games go. So to add like the mech flavor or, you know, environments to it, like I think that'd be a good one to suggest for people who are just sick of like magic spells and pointy hats everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so another game that I wanted to talk about was Zelda's Adventure on the CDI. Oh boy. So I finally got a new CDI that has a, a timekeeper. It's fully repaired, fully, you know, ready to go. Uh, I got the 490 model, which I think is a very beautiful model. I love it. I'm very happy with it. It's a smaller model than my old one. Um, and it came with a demo version of Zelda's Adventure, which was you know supposed to be used to demo the game in stores and whatnot. It's pretty much the full version of the game. And I figured, well, I, it's going to take me a while before I get a actual retail release of this, and I just can't wait to play the same game anymore, because it's the reason I bought my CDI to begin with, was for the Zelda game, specifically Zelda's Adventure. 
So I've done two streams of it so far for a collective total of about, oh geez, I think I'm about seven, eight hours into the game. And I've only completed two dungeons out of like, geez, seven or so. So I've got quite a ways to go. So <laughs> for those that don't know, Zelda's Adventure is a third Zelda game on the CDI. Most people are familiar with the side-scrolling games, Wand of Gamelon and Faces of Evil, the ones that are very colorful, sort of like hand-drawn-esque with the really poor animation scenes. Zelda's Adventure is more of a traditional top-down style Zelda that uses full-motion video. Um, a, <laughs> a couple of people in chat were giving us some cool tidbits on the history of this game while I was streaming it, where the locations in the game were actually taken by employees when they went on vacation to places like Hawaii and California. They were taken top-down in a helicopter. So a lot of the locations in the game are actually taken from real-world photos. What? The monsters are stopped, like sort of like stop-motion animated, like frame by frame. They animate them from little figures that they made. The uh, the people that are in the game are you know stop-motion FMV kind of like frame by frame as well. I don't know the correct terminology for this, but you know sort of like think rotoscope like Mortal Kombat style. I guess I'm not really sure. I, I'm sure I'm getting the terminology wrong on this, but just to kind of put it in perspective. Just, of course, lower quality. Full voice acting by all the NPCs that you run into. They start you off. I mean, this really reminds me of the first Zelda in that they drop you into the world with no sense of direction. They're just like, Link has been kidnapped, go rescue him. And then you're just set loose into the world. And I went into this completely blind, no idea where to go, no idea what to look for. Like, I've, I've, I've of course, seen the Angry Video Game Nerd video of this many years ago, but I don't recall anything about it. So it was as blind as blind can be. And I ended up going around the game world and pretty much mapping this game out almost in its entirety for the first couple of hours before I figured out, you know, how to progress. And this game world is huge. There's probably about, oh god, I don't know, 150 or so if I had to estimate, maybe even more different screens that you can go into. So you know how in a Zelda game you go from screen to screen and it kind mm -hmm. of like scrolls over. It's not like a, a smooth, like, it's not like a Mario platformer where it's like smoothly going from left to right. You know how it stops and kind of like loads in the next screen. Think of yeah. it like that. And so single screen, screen so single screen tiles. There wasn't a, each right. tile wasn't like a scrolling one. The minute you got to the edges, it moved on to the next tile, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the best way to describe it. And each tile is unique. It's got its own kind of like um, background picture and its own enemies. And there are dungeons and there are items. There are power ups. There. Are are heart containers that I was very proud of finding some of them actually where it was kind of like very cryptic where it's like okay you get a feather and then I'm like oh shoot a couple of hours ago I found a cave where there was a heart and it was up on a cliff so what if I take this feather I thought I'd be able to fly up on the cliff but instead it shot feathers at the orb that opened <laughs> up a bridge to let me get the heart so but either way I mean it's got this great sense of exploration where suddenly I'll be exploring this section of the woods and I'll come across a stump that I can walk into and oh guess what there's a heart container hidden down there like it was just a great sense of discovery and adventure that I honestly hadn't felt in in a Zelda game in well I shouldn't say in quite a while Breath of the Wild did that but it, it really gave me that sense of a real Zelda game as, it, as weird it's as odd to say. it's odd because what you're describing sounds like the original Zelda game <laughs> and that's what this is it's I can't I don't understand why this game gets slammed so much. I mean, you guys have no idea. For a CDI game, okay, this is by far the most ambitious game that I've ever played on the system, and I've pretty much almost played every worthwhile game up to this point on the console. This game is so huge, so ambitious, 
there's so much going on, so much hidden depth in terms of like discovering stuff in the world and just what's in there. Like the dungeons are so I would I wouldn't say well crafted, but there's so much thought put into them. I just got done with this dungeon, the second dungeon in the game, where it's like this circus house where there's all these like false walls and false doors and like little puzzles that you have to solve and it's just very imaginative, very different. People slam this because it's very style-wise, some things are way different than your traditional. I mean, most people, people slam tend, it because it's on the CDI. Yeah, most people tend you to know? attribute the game to being a Zelda that was handicapped with all the resources and assets around making a Zelda game, meaning they were trying to build the framework for what would have been basically a, a normal Zelda game, but just the use of, like, like people didn't like the graphics, the animation, the combat was still too... Like, how was the combat? I, I remember when I was watching your playthrough, I was thinking the combat looked a little stiff or slow. It's... Okay, so here's the thing about the combat. It's it's actually... The swinging of the weapon, it's a wand. People think it's a sword, but I'm pretty sure it's a wand. It, it's, it's not bad. Like, you swing it, it attacks in front of you. Okay. The problem comes in with the hitboxes, where... Your enemies, their hitboxes are huge. You can swing and you can hit an enemy that's like several feet away from you in the game. Like it's it's kind of strange. And then the second problem comes in in that the enemies do a crap ton of damage. You start with three hearts and you'll come across enemies that can almost one-shot you. If you somehow, like me, wander into parts of the game that you're not supposed to be in yet, but you don't know that because you're trying to explore the world and find out where to go next... There were many instances where I died countless times in this. And the thing is, when you die in this game, unless you're in a dungeon, you get sent back to the beginning of the game. The beginning. So sometimes you'll have to trek 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes to get back to where you were. Um, of course, it might not be the place you're supposed to go to, because how do you know that? You don't know, because the game is kind of like, it sets you off in this adventure. But there is an order to the dungeons that I was not aware of, where you do have to do them in a set order. And if you don't realize that order, then you're kind of in trouble. There are NPCs that give you hints. And this is what I love, though. It's like you, you come to an NPC and they're like, oh, there's a water dungeon over yonder. You know, just that's not what they say. But just as an example, <laughs> they'll give you kind of like a cryptic hint. Were you part of the original cast here? Where you need to go. <laughs> yeah, the voice acting is actually pretty top notch. Of course, I'm trolling, but it's. You know, I'd rather a game like this have voice acting than no voice than not, acting. Yeah. Because I think it adds a lot of charm to the game. And it's a lot of fun when you have really weird voice acting. Because it, it adds more personality, it adds more character to these NPCs that would normally just be lifeless text boxes. <laughs> Definitely memorable, that's for sure. No, but did the game um, come with like a map or like additional printed material that would have helped you out? Or like, do you even know? I'm if not sure when it comes to the physical one because my, my version is just like a, a, the disc form of it, but I don't think it has a map. There okay. is an in-game map that, you know, shows you the map and where your position is, but I, I don't think, because people were trying to look for me when I was really struggling on where to go next. And they couldn't, they couldn't find, find a map resource no. online. Uh, to my knowledge. So I think any map that exists is definitely player and fan created. But it was very demoralizing and discouraging to kind of like die and be sent all the way back to the beginning of the game. But I, I mean, I that was the original it. Zelda too, you know? Yeah, it was. It's faithful in that regard. But I powered through it and I defeated the second dungeon and it feels great to triumph in this game because it's not easy. This game is pretty damn difficult. Difficult. Yeah, but it's fun. I mean, it's 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 definitely more fun than I was thinking it would be. It's by far one of my favorite CDI games. It's unfortunate it's rare. It's, it's unfortunate it's expensive. But I think if you're a Zelda fan, you owe it to yourself to at least try this game by whatever means you deem necessary. 
Um, I, you know, I'll leave it at that because I realize this game is rare. I realize it's expensive, but I think from a Zelda historical perspective, just to see what an actual Zelda game was like on the CDI, not including the other ones, I think you should really try it out. Yeah, There's I a mean, lot of callbacks to, to enemies and such, too, so I don't know. I think it's worth it. There is an RGB mod available for the CDI now, so it may start tempting me more and more. I keep going back and forth on the CDI, wondering if it's worth, you know, going to be worth my time and investment. But I don't know. Now that it's RGB enabled, maybe I might go that route. The game selection, it's 90% garbage, if not more. Um, and then the other small percent are actual decent games. The thing that you have to realize going into the CDI is that most games, if you were to view them, you know, if you put them side by side with a PlayStation or a Saturn yeah, it's or no even Super Nintendo Genesis, there's no contest with the exception of just like a very small handful of games. But you have to view it from the perspective of the hardware itself, where you see where the game, the console began with games like Dark Castle and how they struggled to even port Dark Castle to the CDI because the CDI is not meant for traditional type video games. If you have a video game on the CDI that can scroll like a platformer, that's super ambitious. Because the hardware and the technology on the CDI is just not supposed to be capable of such things. Hell, I played a first-person shooter on the CDI on stream recently called uh, Atlantis The Last Resort, which is the only first-person shooter on the console that is just a technical marvel for the CDI. Because stuff like that was not supposed to be possible. There's a huge article online that I read, too, that talked about the workings and how they managed to do a first-person shooter on the CDI. You know, if you compare it to Doom, it looks like a load of garbage. But for the CDI, it's like the next coming of, you know, the best video game ever. <laughs> the next Doom. Exactly. So, I mean, that's what you have to do. You have to be in the right mindset for CDI. Are there games that are amazing, even if you're not comparing it to other consoles? There's a couple. But most of the games, you have to kind of just approach it from a very appreciation for the hardware itself and the obscurity of a console that was not really meant to play games. It was more of a multimedia type platform for movies and CDs and interactive type of educational games. Yeah, the I mean, the hardware capabilities game. definitely seemed like it was lent more to like that edutainment stuff, like very high res stills and like tile based movement, like, you know, pictures flipping in a picture book, high end multimedia and audio. FMV games, ones that, you know, say like a, a Mad Dog Creed game or something like that, mm -hmm. um, Dragon's Lair or Space Ace, stuff like that, they they actually look better. Like Seventh uh, Guest, for example, is known as being pretty much the best console port. Yeah, it runs in the highest res on that system. Yeah, if not even better than a PC, if I'm remembering right, mm -hmm. for the time, but it looks spectacular on the CDI because of the digital video cartridge. So there are a couple of things the CDI does quite quite well that other consoles couldn't quite compare to it's just that the library is very limited <laughs> well too bad was there I'll any last game i'll that flip you wanted a coin hmm? was there any last game that you wanted to mention yeah the, there's only one more game i wanted to talk about here at least for this podcast and it was just and it's only because it was just so odd to me and i i, get, I shouldn't even say it was odd but i played this game called uh, alcatraz and this was on the amiga the a500 system I'm actually loving going through the Amiga library just because there's like what four, three, four thousand games, and I would say a good eighty percent of them, you know, were exclusive to the Amiga. But just in digging around some lists, like I, I, I've already think gone through a lot of the ones that I remember as a kid. So I started digging into the the games I didn't have any idea about on the Amiga. So I booted up this one called Alcatraz, and 
it seems initially when you first boot up pretty straightforward it's, it looks like it's going to be like you're a stealth army guy that's just trying to escape in you're trying to break into alcatraz to stop some crazy general who's stolen some nuclear weapons and you're supposed to get off the i don't know i wasn't even paying attention to the story but when the game boots up you're presented with um how do you say it you're presented with a le- standard left to right side scroll the problem is is that it's split screen top and bottom and on each top and bottom screen there's your player they're two different players and the weird thing is I started the game up obviously in one player mode. So I thought I had, I thought I error, I made an error and selected the second player mode. So I booted a bit back up, selected the first player mode. And again, I'm presented with the same split screen, two different guys. So I have control over the guy on the top. So I started moving that guy around because I have no idea what's happening with the second one or if there was an error in the code. Like the most crazy thing about these Amiga games is that I don't even know if I'm booting up like the right version of the game. Is there some hacked version? Is it some pirated version? Is this something that's broken? I don't even know. So I start moving my guy at the top screen and he has very, you know, basic controls. He can, he can throw knives. He can pick up guns from defeated enemies and he can jump and roll. So as I'm making my through the level at the top, I noticed that the guy below me or in the lower half of the split screen, he starts getting attacked. Enemies have shown up and they eventually kill him. So then I'm thinking to myself, well, do I have some way to control this guy? And if I do, how the hell do they expect me to play both players simultaneously? And, you know, on the Amiga, it's like, I, I tried to look, I had to look at the manual for this. And apparently in the single player mode, you do control both of these Marines. And what you have to do is you have to hit the enter key to swap between the two. And your the goal is to progress both of them to the goals at in each level. And it was weird because I was thinking to myself, well, if I switch to one, how, what am I doing with the other guy? Like, does he just stand out there and I'm waiting? But the key is that, and I didn't know this, as you're walking through this environment, you can actually hit up to, like, hide yourself into the background. So if there's, like, some bushes, you can hit up and he'll jump into the bushes and then the enemies can't attack him. And then you're supposed to switch to the second guy, have him progress forward, and then, you know, switch back and forth. So it was so odd to me because I just, I didn't realize that... It was one of these split screen games that similar to what you see in like say Xenophobe, but that was meant to give you split screen because it was a lot, it was supposed to give you multiplayer in this, in this kind of game. But in this one, they want you to control both. So it was, it was a crazy little game. And when I finally got both the guys to the end, of course, what does the game have to do? Switch up completely on me. It turns into an overhead maze first person game oh now. Oh my god, just when you get used to it. I know. And again, it does the same thing where I have to switch back and forth to control both guys. And in these overhead maze sequences, you're just, and it's not like true first person controls. It's just like kind of like the original, like fantasy star style mazes, right? When you're just walking tile to tile in this environment and trying to figure out where all the items are. You walk into the rooms, you shoot guys down and then you get out of there. And, but again, you have to progress both guys. And I didn't know how to hide like the second guy as I swap back and forth. So I just let my guy had to die. I got one guy out and then it got it. It went into the next sequence where. It was side-scrolling again. And again, at, since my other guy died, I just had one guy. So I thought to myself, why don't I just kill that second guy right off the bat so I don't have to deal with the swapping method. So so I, I started the next game like that. I got to the same point, but then I guess I couldn't progress because at certain points they finally present you with something where you have to have both of them work like together to get past like an obstacle. So that, that's kind of like where I, I gave up on the game because it was frustrating to just figure out how to get to that point in the first place. But... 
in the end, it was it was a unique experience that I've never ever seen on any other system or platform. And those are the kind of games I, I love running into on the Amiga. So that was my final game that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> One of these days, I would love to delve into the Amiga library. I find it really kind of scary in a way, though, just because of how many games there are on that console that I have so absolutely many. no idea about. Because I've never played any Amiga. Um, you know, I, I honestly anybody in America is kind of it's like Amiga is foreign to them for the most yeah. part, unless you're one of the lucky few that has delved into that side of gaming. I mean, it's just like you saying there's what two to three thousand. Yeah, three to four thousand, and like eighty percent of them unique to that platform. I mean, that just seems like you can have a lifetime of games there alone, just delving into what the hell is available for that system. It's not <sighs> something that I'm ready to get into yet, but man, it just sounds so enticing. Yeah. Every time that you talk about an Amiga game, it just sounds so kind of like mysterious and just exciting to kind of get into a game that, you know, most people have no idea about. I mean, and there's just gameplay ideas that are just like kind of uniquely European that didn't really make their way into like Western or Japanese games. So you just end up with gameplay modes and and styles that you just don't find in any of the games that we'll find, you know, the majority of the U.S. and, you and know, I love movies. my platformers, and there are a crap ton of platformers on Amiga consoles. There are a lot. I mean, oh my god. <laughs> but one thing I'll say about Amiga fans, they are very, very, uh, let's just say, I don't know, loyal, passionate about their <laughs> soundtracks. Their <laughs> soundtracks, man, they will argue to the death that games like Shadow of the Beast have the best soundtrack on the Amiga. Yeah, they it's don't give a crap crazy. how good it sounds on any other console, even though they know they're wrong, they will still battle <laughs> to the death that their soundtrack reigns supreme. They're a very loyal bunch, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's just me being jealous that I can't play Amiga games yet. You gotta so do it soon, man. I'm sure it's they're fun. actually kind of right. It depends what one you grew up with, too, as well. But yeah, and I guess the one I the one I grew up with is basically like it was essentially like a souped up Sega Genesis system. Really, it was the same Z80 processor, but souped up with graphics and sound. So, like a lot of their games, you could see how they would have easily been ported to a Genesis, and a lot of the games were, in fact. But unfortunately, like, just, a lot of those ports ended up being god awful. Yeah, that's the problem. They just couldn't handle the same. It couldn't output the same amount of power that the Amiga A500 did. So, but it was definitely like the consoleized you know, PC system for its time. That's why it's so popular. Well, I think we're drawing to a close here for episode two. Hopefully you guys had a good listen for that. Uh, we apologize if there were any audio issues this time around. We tried to adjust some settings in Discord that we think helped fix the problem. Um, a couple of times I heard Bovine's voice cut in and out, but I don't think it was bad as it was in the first episode. Did yeah, you, you were pretty good. I didn't hear you cut once, Pete, so hopefully okay, it comes good. across. Yes, yeah, so we apologize for that first episode again. There were just some issues that we had. But once again, uh, we did have more questions. We were going to get to a Q&A session, but we kind of took a couple of the questions and put them into the beginning of the episode. Um, it's almost 4.30 in the morning here, so it's definitely almost bedtime here. But it's been a pretty hefty episode. We talked a lot of, about a lot of stuff. If we didn't get to your question that you emailed to us, we'll... Definitely try and get to that in the next episode or two. And once again, you can send questions to the show to RetroGameExplorers at gmail.com, and we'll try our best to get to it in a future episode. And I just wanted to quickly mention as well that uh, you can now support the podcast on my Patreon at patreon.com slash Pete Dorn. It'll actually give you early access. So if you're already a pre-existing Patreon, or Patreon, patron, on my Patreon, uh, you'll get early access. So normally we record the podcast every other Sunday night. 
Um, so you would get access on either late Sunday night or sometime Monday afternoon. Um, otherwise, everybody else, you'll have access on Wednesdays. So thanks very much for listening. And um, is there anything I'm forgetting, Bovine? I don't think Besides so. Thanking, thanking the listeners. Oh, yes, one more time iTunes reviews, we really appreciate them. Even just a five star review. We'd love to ev- maybe eventually get featured on there as one of their new and noteworthy podcasts because that does help with new discoverability when it comes to people that find the podcast outside of Twitch. Yeah, but if you have any thanks. criticisms, questions, or comments, let us know. Yeah, definitely let us know. But thank you, everyone, who's taken the time to listen to the podcast, give feedback, give us reviews. And in stream, thank you again for all the people just you know letting us know they listen to it, they appreciate it, they like the content. So just really want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to the podcast and give us some feedback, whether in stream or on the reviews or iTunes. So appreciate it very much, and thank you all. And we'll see you guys in two weeks from now. Thank you very much. See you in stream.